Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, we have lots of lots and lots of animation to talk about uh, this <laughs> month. Surprisingly, like all our main topics, right? Animated. Yep. Yep. The Mitchells vs. the Machines, Love, Death, and Robots, Castlevania kind of represent the Western side of, you know, animation. Um, and if you want to include stuff like MODOK, you know, which is stop motion, yep. um, Adventure Time, Distant Lands, and all of that, it's very animation heavy. Plus, you know, we have the best of the West with the best of the East because Isa is bringing back Isa's anime corner mm. um, with lots of cool new titles and some very big returning titles as well. Yep. Um, there is one, like, big thing that we're not covering just yet um everyone's gonna be asking like where is my hero academia look my hero academia is like for us it's a main topic yeah like, for we're, sure we're, we're gonna wait for it to finish and then we'll 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 give it like a bigger spotlight than rather than just a, a quick mention like do you know what i mean yeah for sure i i think with something like my hero academia you're gonna watch it anyway with us t- um telling you about it or not right like so we're just gonna say like it's out season five is out yeah uh we are a good number of episodes in um, if you're in Singapore and you have Netflix, it is now coming out weekly on Netflix and it's not too far behind Japan. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like an easy way to like keep up with everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. like, you know, My Hero is not some sort of deep cut that we need to tell you about. Uh, so it's fine. Everyone that knows about My Hero true. Academia. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are going to kick off like our episode on a bit of sad news. I'm sure a lot of uh, manga and anime fans have heard by now that Kentaro Miura, the author and creator of the influential title Berserk, mm. uh, passed away on May 6th um, at the age of 54. Uh, I think Miura's influence on modern fantasy writing and specifically modern fantasy art uh, can hardly be overstated, you know. You know, like all from all the way back to 1989 when, when Berserk first came out, you know, it was yep. this really game-changing, serial, dark fantasy story about a knight named Guts and his extremely big sword, you know? <laughs> um, so the, the series kind of became famous for its dark themes and its violence, and it became globally successful. It sold, like, 50 million copies worldwide, you know, arguably purely on the strength of the character work and the complicated, like, uh, interpersonal relationships. Uh, as much as it's insane art style, you know, it's almost like Hieronymus Botch kind of style uh, mm. art, you know. Uh, and it started a trend, you know, like without Berserk, I, I doubt we'll have uh, stuff like Final Fantasy, mm-hmm. um, you know, Dante from Devil May Cry, yeah. uh, and, and, and lots of other titles. Um, in fact, some of them that we're talking about like this month, you know, uh, arguably have roots in the influence of Kentaro Miura's work, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a sad loss to the industry. Um, we know he's been having health issues for a while, and Berserk fans have been very patient with you know the delays of the title. But just, you know, we understand lah. You know, it's a it's a legitimate reason to because the art style is so intricate because mm-hmm. of his health issues. It's a legitimate reason to be patient. You know, it's not a George R. R. Martin situation where yeah, he's you know he's just I don't know binging shows or whatever. <laughs> but Kentaro Miura definitely one of the most influential manga creators of all time i mean you're more into the manga and anime world than i am you know like i'm sure you have some some thoughts about this i mean like so many beloved franchises um Mm -hmm. have have been derivative right like of of what berserk has done i've been inspired by them i pay tribute to them you know if you're a gamer and you play anything from dark souls that's all miura right like from from the feel of it to the look of it to even some of the storylines you know highly highly influenced by berserk and all of that anything like dark fantasy 
modern day dark fantasy, like you can't watch anything without it having some sort of like reference or tribute to to that look and that style and that kind of tone that he established uh, originally. Mm. With yeah, that. I will say like um, in in remembrance of Mira's work, if you have not been exposed to what Berserk is, um, I'm going to start off by saying that it's not for everyone. It is incredibly gory, incredibly violent, regardless mm. of which medium that you're going to choose. Uh, and it's extremely disturbing. Definitely not for for children or even for young teens. Uh, even though I think I I started reading Berserk at quite a young age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I'm I'm more familiar with the anime as a young teen as well. But yeah. I I mean I totally agree. It's not for kids. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. So I started out with uh the 1999 anime, mm. uh, which is a classic by all measures. In fact, if you want to watch, please watch the 99 version. Mm. Uh, the modern day version was. Okay. I have not seen the new version. Like, what's wrong with it? Um, it's one of those like 3D cell shaded things. Oh, I don't like which style, yeah. which uh we have established that we don't like here in house at, at genre. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, I did feel like it took a lot away from the uniqueness of the art style that Mura has created. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was like a big no no for me and for a lot of like like purist fans. I'm guessing. Uh, I mean, yeah. But also because of that, and um, at the point in time when that came out, it wasn't really that polished. Um, so, like, the the pacing was a bit off in terms of the way that they adapted the material. Mm. Um, it just didn't have the kind of, like, the kind of, like, tonal resonance that the original one had. Understood, yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, when the new one came out, which you can catch on Netflix if you're if you're so inclined, uh, it made me go back to read the manga, which I had never done before. And oh ah. my word, mm-hmm. uh, some of the most incredible spreads like possible uh, come out from the manga, right? Like there, there are just moments in time where, you know, it's just like a purely like inked black and white spread in the middle where it's it's breathtaking. You could put it up in a poster, you know, it's a completely kind of like different level of manga art. Um, what he was practicing at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we get a lot of that now and a lot of that had to do with him just, like, putting so much effort and so much time and, and detail into these incredible, like, landscapes and these character studies that that served a very particular purpose within the story itself while at the same time being, you know, just, like, eye candy to the extreme. Yeah, yeah. Um, his art style kind of reminds me a bit of like, you know who like Joe Madurera is? Or, or Joe Matt, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, like it, uh, he's a bit of like the Western version of him. But mm-hmm. like of, of, obviously like, you know, Kentaro came way before. So <laughs> I highly urge you to check out both the early enemy, like the 1999, right? Enemy. Yeah. Um, and if you have the means, uh, please go read the manga. The new enemy is okay. Uh, yeah, it's all right. Um, it, it's... I think if you want to get easy kind of access to that and you have a... I, I know a lot of people have trouble watching old animes because 4 by 3 mm. um, aspect ratio and people don't like that and obviously the quality isn't going to be as great. Although I do hear that they might there might be a remastered version coming out Interesting. Um, okay. for that. Um, yeah. But I mean like if you don't mind those things, right? If you're watching like re-watching like Naruto from the beginning or Bleach from the beginning, right? Like, you shouldn't be complaining about that. It, I highly recommend watching the original one. If mm-hmm. you watch the original one and you want to see what the fuss is about for the modern day one, uh, and I mean fuss in, not in terms of hype, but just like in terms of how divisive it was then. Yeah. It's on Netflix. You can you can watch it. It's uh it's serviceable. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely, man. Uh, RIP to Kentaro Miura and condolences to all his fans, of which we are two of them, you know. Uh, definitely going to be, you know, re-watching Berserk or re-reading Berserk soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but moving on to our first main topic of Journal Equality 42, uh, it came out early in the month, uh, yeah. on the first, actually. So uh, this is a bit long overdue, but I've been uh, eager to talk about The Mitchells versus The Machines, which is an animated comedy about a seemingly ordinary family trying to survive a robot uprising. Um, it's a giddily <laughs> thrilling all-ages adventure filled with you know, a barrage of clever jokes that come at you at a mile a minute mm. is directed by, by Mike Rianda, who you may know from Gravity Falls, and it's produced by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Um, the Mitchells versus the Machines absolutely lives up to Lord and Miller's high standards that they have uh, established in you know, um, movies like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, yeah. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Lego Batman, you know, it's, it's, it's up there. Um, this movie is kind of a, a subversive delight that should appeal to Gen Y or millennial adults alongside <laughs> more tech-savvy Gen Z kids. You know, yeah. That's because um, like the tongue-in-cheek Terminator-esque robot apocalypse isn't really the hook here. You know? mm-hmm. um, Mike Rianda based the characters on his own family, so it is very relatable in a, simultaneously, like it's it's very universal but also ultra-specific to Rianda. And we all have, like, you know, we all think our family is weird and we, we kind of get it. And the Mitchells a singularly awkward and weird family. <laughs> uh, well, before they have to fend off a technological apocalypse, you know, all yeah. their own. You know, there's the older daughter Katie, who is voiced by A.B. Jacobson from uh, Tuka and Bertie and uh, Broad City. Um, it's uh, she's set to go to film school in California, where she assumes she'll find her people, people mm. of her ilk, uh, those who appreciate her oddball and anarchic creative spirit. I guess um, it's nothing against her parents, Rick and Linda. Uh, they love her, but they don't seem to get her. Um, Katie's younger brother is just as odd as her, but in a different way because he's obsessed with dinosaurs. Uh, he, <laughs> his obsession is so fierce that he calls random people in a phone book to see if they want to talk to him about dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, so Katie is supposed to take a plane to to film school, but her dad decides to cancel her flight and drive her him, herself himself you know and it, he, he kind of wants to turn it into a family bonding road trip like, because he feels that his daughter is going apart from him uh however they wind up being the center of an ai uprising uh and once the robots rise uh oh boy uh, the Mitchells versus machines really goes into high gear um i really enjoyed the fast pace of the jokes i really enjoyed the interesting animation style the film is so yeah. bright and colorful it has this super inventive mix of like you know 3d hand-drawn and pop art details it's, it's so cool like the, the art looks like sometimes it looks like it's doodled with markers and ballpoint pens on a notebook you know mm. um it's it's really great and i enjoyed the emotional arc of the film as well what about you uh i love how meme this entire film is right mm-hmm. um just the fact that you know i mean obviously here i'm guessing you know katie and her brother are definitely yeah gen genius i guess yeah. uh you know and completely tuned in right with the with the internet and and all the kind of like entertainment and means of communication that it affords right uh and then in comparison the parents being more like elder millennial not quite boomer but but younger than that uh, but like you know elder mm. millennial kind of like struggling to understand their kind of place in a world that is moving faster uh than the speed of light in terms of like the way things are in trend and all of that um just a bit out of touch right like um yeah. um you know, struggling with with how the in, intangibles of of techno- the world uh, with technology and kind of like um, the more material world that they kind of grew up with in their childhood. So um, that forms the basis for how they relate to each other in such 
and probably one of the most funnily dysfunctional families mm-hmm. I have seen on screen since um, Arrested Development Season 1, I think. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it is so good. It is so good. Um, I, I really love the fact that uh, it's quick and it's fast, but it's very well paced overall. Like there are no kind of like drops in terms of the action or the the storytelling. Uh, every kind of joke and kind of moment adds to the characters itself. So you mm. don't and you don't um sacrifice plot at any given point in time for character development or vice versa. Yeah, which is rare to see in in film these days. Um, mm. uh, because like so so you so much of the time directors kind of like sacrifice one for the other for it mm. to be done in such a short sweet kind of like uh, animation such as this I, I'm thinking it's like just over 100 minutes long um, you know it's really fun right like it's a fun ride and uh, I remember seeing the trailer I said like, oh this looks pretty cool then of course you know Netflix list that yeah, is done by Phil Lord and Chris Miller and Chris Miller and then you mentioned it and I was just like okay cool I'm gonna catch this uh, one of the more surprising kind of like uh, topics that we're covering today because like it's so good mm. it's so good and I think like if people gave it a chance uh, it might be remembered as fondly as like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs which is like, mm-hmm. in my opinion a, a non-Pixar classic right as far as you know 3D animation goes yeah, um, yeah. but seems kind of lost, right? Mm. In terms of like, like barely anybody is talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just kind of lost in, in the this, this sea of things that Netflix kind of throws at you all the time. Yeah. So uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good thing that we got the chance to kind of shout it out. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fun watch. It's a fun watch. If you are a millennial parent and have kids, mm-hmm. uh, I think that would be, you know, it, it, it's quite a ride, right? Like, and yeah. there's a lot of touching, heartfelt moments that uh, that hit a lot harder than I expected uh, it to. Um, despite the fact I, I'm not a parent mm, uh, or agree. anything so on. but um, yeah, just a great kind of like multi generational um comedy adventure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the animation style is the thing that will first grab at you. The, f- the first thing that will grab you is it's very, you know, bright. It's very colorful. It's very super inventive, you know, yeah. all the different styles shown in. Uh, but I think like the deftest element of the film is the emotional arc of it, which, you know, it never turns into a lecture about the evils of technology or yeah. about the dehumanizing qualities of technology. You know, I'm a bit like sick of those type of stories, you know? <laughs> Having seen a lot of Black Mirror and stuff like that, you know, like yeah. like Rick the dad is is utterly perplexed by technology, and it's true. And he wishes <laughs> that his family would ignore their phones at the dinner table and have you know actual conversations. But the core emotions of the films is is rooted in Katie and her dad's relationship, which means that they both change throughout the course of the of the adventure. So he has to shift a little bit towards embracing technology, and Katie has to shift a little bit towards understanding where his dad, where her dad is coming from, you know. Yeah. Um, and plus there's a kind of like Looney Tune, anarchic madcap energy that, that drives the <laughs> film's comedy, which is a bit of a trademark of a lot in Miller Productions, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then you squeeze into it like the genuine heart of the father-daughter dynamic, and that that's what makes it uh, special. Uh, that's what makes it a special thing. Um, it draws you in with like you know zany laughs, and then suckers you in for like a good cry at, at key moments. Mm, so, yeah. Um, a very good mix of the two. How would you rate this? Ooh, uh, it's an, it's like an eight point five for me. Like I really, really enjoy this, and like um, time will tell whether or not like it ages well. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like it's very specific to the time we're living in right now. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, it's it's a solid recommend for me. Um, one of the one of the really good kind of like animated films to come out this year. Yeah. Um, similarly, it's an eight point five out of ten for me as well. Uh, on the same page with this, we both really love it, and we hope that you embrace it as well. Um, carrying on with <laughs> animated things on Netflix about robots. Um, Love, Death, and Robots is back for Volume 2, you know. Um, it features, you know, a wild adventures on far-flung planets and unsettling encounters closer to home. Yeah. Um, Tim Miller and David Finch's kind of eclectic sci-fi anthology, I think, uh, comes back with a crop of uh, new provocative shots in Volume 2. Um, it once again features a diversity of genres and animation styles. Um, these eight new, kind of not safe for work episodes are, you know, alternately um, sometimes, you know, dazzling in its artwork sometimes yeah. horrific, sometimes mind-bending, sometimes comedic, uh, with no two installments looking or feeling exactly alike. Um, you know, uh, they include stories from classic sci-fi writers like Harlan Ellison, whose mm -hmm. uh, story Life Hutch uh, was adapted here, G.G. Ballard's The Drowned Giant, um, as well as modern sci-fi writers like uh, John Scalzi's uh, Automated Customer Service, you know, Ashes, Snow in the Desert, uh, and, and other stuff, you know. Um, what are your thoughts on the second season of um, Love, Death, and Robots? I'm, I have a bit of a downer take on this, so I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, um, it, it's good. Uh, this season, I think, overall is good. But it's not as good as season one. Mm. Uh, I think it has to do with the fact that we got less uh, kind of episodes than we did in Maybe. season one. So yeah. the, the spread isn't as, you know, um, the variety isn't as great. Um, the stories aren't as diverse as I expected them to be, given what we got in season one. Mm. Um, but I do feel like overall, if anything, the animation quality this season is is one up, like it's spectacular. Yeah. Um, there are moments in time where I couldn't tell if it was live action or not. And yeah. given just how much media we consume, uh, especially on uh, my end when we're talking about like games or like like three D animation and stuff like that, like that is a f that is quite a feat, mm -hmm. right? Um, it is in insane the kind of technology, the kind of uh things that technology can do these days. And just you know, given that these uh, volume one and volume two are like what two years apart. Yeah, two years yeah, apart, yeah. 2019, 2021. Yeah, two years apart, you know, and um, just overall, like, what we got here in terms of the quality and the production value is really, really high. That mm -hmm. being said, I don't have as many favorites mm. from this season via uh, um, what we got last season, right? Like, I remember a lot of what we got last season very, very clearly. I go yeah. back to rewatch them. I don't, know if I got any of that from this season. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I do, I mean, like one or two things stand out, but they don't stand out for the same reasons mm -hmm. uh, as the season one favorites. Mm -hmm. uh, so all in all, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. Like, it's, it's, it's okay. It's good. Uh, it's, it's fun for the amount of time that, you know, each individual episode is there. Um, but it doesn't have the same kind of wow moments that I was looking forward to uh, all in all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, first off, like, on, on the good parts, like, I do have to agree that the animation on, on offer, consistently stellar, you know, from the CGI hyper-realism to, to stop motion to even the 2D hand-drawn style. I think yeah. each was accomplished with mastery and with the utmost artistry, you know, like, kudos to the different studios that did this. Um, 
perhaps like the complaint is that season two felt more like a resume builder for these various animation studios. <laughs> yeah. You know, like see what we can do. Um, where it utterly fails, in my opinion, is the writing and the storytelling, yep. uh, which leaves a lot to be desired. I think the majority of these shorts were breezily entertaining, sure, but, but they don't provide much more. Um, nearly all of them are, are thematically shallow, um, mm. derivative, uh, empty, and unmemorable. I'm not talking about the art, I'm talking about stories. Yep. They are unmemorable. I was very disappointed in the writing this season. Yeah. Uh, and it felt as if like the animators stepped it up, the writing team phoned it you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I, I I feel like um, yeah, a lot of it feels done. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's all done, and you're not bringing anything to the table outside of an interesting or really polished animation style. Um, you know, things like Pop Squad, for example. Um, which we, I mean, we're not going to go into necessarily Pop Squad. Was, I mean, the premise is done. You're not bringing anything new to the table. You mm-hmm. know, neither snow in the desert, neither is. Neither is any of the things really. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if if anything, I think Ice was the most interesting one because of just the animation style and the very little world building that they managed to do in like the ten ish minutes that it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but in comparison to what we got, like with with the the steampunk one last uh, in twenty nineteen, yeah. um, you know the the um, what's the blue one called? Uh, um. Zima Blue. Zima Blue, um, right? Like Lucky 13, like so many, so many great ones that just like kind of took you by surprise. Um, yes, Volume 2 is is none of that at yeah. all. Um, so if you want to be entertained by the visual spectacle of what modern day graphics, uh, computer graphics can do, mm-hmm. then by all means, go ahead and watch Volume 2. Just don't, Lower your expectations, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't don't come in like expecting like you know more phenomenal stuff that we got in volume one. I'm I'm hoping that the audience's responses to this uh this volume um will be reflected in the decisions that they make for volume three if we get one. Definitely. Yeah. Um. I'm giving this season a six out of ten. Um, I feel like on on uh, on the one hand, um, animation is five out of five, um, straight up yep. full scores for all other animators. Kudos to all of you. Yeah, the writing is like one out of five, so I combine them into like six out of ten. Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I'm gonna give it a six as well. Mm. Um, yeah, animation for sure. I think like Drowned Giant was kind of like spectacular all in all, but so disappointing because it had absolutely nothing to say, right? And uh, yeah. Like you like like you like to tell um people like um boring is better than meh and we got a lot of meh. Yeah, a, a lot of meh. Yeah, a lot of unfulfilled potential in the stories. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. You know, uh, moving on to another Netflix. Wow, Netflix heavy this uh this month. Yeah. Uh, we have the final season of Castlevania. Um, for the fast for the past three seasons, Castlevania took the best part of the economy games that it's based on and remixed them with its own vast mythology. The result was a gloriously violent, you know, intricately plotted and philosophically complex series. You know, in yep. this fourth and final season, Castlevania remains, I think, in my opinion, the greatest video game adaptation ever made yep. uh, with a gory, cathartic, and ultimately satisfying conclusion. Mm. Um, it's set just a few weeks after the events of the third season. Uh, Castlevania Season 4 opens with a kind of like 
aimlessness uh, that quickly becomes the thematic trust of every major character that we are introduced to. Yeah. You know? um, all the while, it's setting up new threats to hang uh, the wider series arc on. Um, Trevor and Sifa are utterly devastated by the grim events at Lindenfield and find themselves wandering, fighting off three night creatures just to find something to do, you know, then rather rather than because they want to. Yeah. Um, Alucard is similarly despondent, um, <laughs> melancholy, uh, biding in t- his time in his father's home, um, avoiding people until a chance for adventure and connection comes his way uh, from a local village elder uh, leader named Greta, you know. Mm. On the villain side, we have Isaac, who spent much of last season uh, building up forces uh, in a quest for vengeance against the former lieutenants of Dracula. Yeah. Uh, he begins this season in a period of self-reflection, uh, contemplating what could come after his revenge. Likewise, the Council of Styria, um, Striga, Morena, and Lenore, uh, they find themselves unsure of the direction of their sister Carmilla uh, mm-hmm. is taking because, you know, in order to create a stable vampiric empire of their own, uh, Carmilla may, may be overstretching herself. And, yep. and now that Forge Master Hector has been seemingly bent to their will, you know, what are they going to do with him? Is he, is he really on their side? There is an awful lot of self-reflection and sense of purposelessness uh, a lot of well- wallowing and despair in the show's bleak world, uh, emphasizing the cycles of violence that these characters are stuck in for the first half of season four. Mm. Uh, which is why I think the beginning half might seem a little sluggish or overly meticulous, yeah. despite still delivering good character moments, still mm-hmm. delivering good action sequences, mm-hmm. and still ultimately delivering like great monologues, you know. Yeah. Um, but when the show is done setting up its chess pieces, uh, it really ramps up. The back <laughs> half of season four, I think, sticks the landing in a major way and compensates for the sluggishness of the first half yeah, by sure. delivering probably the most phenomenal action set pieces that we've seen in the series thus far. Mm-hmm. I think the thrilling climax offers the best action uh, the series has ever animated in terms of scale, oh, in yeah. terms of slick, graceful choreography. Um, Castlevania is as it, at its best when Trevor, Alucard, and Sifa are together as mm. a team, <laughs> and, and 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 the moment when they you know finally join up in the last two episodes is the moment when like season four kind of goes balls to the wall, you know yeah. everything clicks, the show goes full out, firing on all cylinders, relentless kinetic energy, you know, um, and, and that's you know that's where the show ends on, and it ends on a bright spot, you know. Um, what about you? What, what do you think about Castlevania season four? Uh, I. I definitely did find the first half sluggish, right? Mm. Uh, but at the same time, it is also because um, where we left off in season three, like there was a lot of action kind of like stuffed into the second half of season three. Uh, like, yeah. like, I understand the need to do all of the, you know, um, moving all the pieces on the board and establishing all of that. And I think an important part is that they spent the first half of the season answering the major philosophical questions that have been posed uh, throughout the throughout the, the entirety of the franchise, mm-hmm. right? Um, they have to work out all of the untied loose ends between the characters uh, and all of that before they can move into the ultimate plot resolution. Yeah. Uh, and I think that they, that was extremely important. Otherwise, you kind of fall into like Game of Thrones final season territory, right? Yeah. Um, where where you know you give like okay let's let's have the dragons and the fire and and all of that and and then you're just left with these major overhanging questions that everybody is just wondering what you're gonna do with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly over the four seasons and I think especially prominent in season four, 
is that Castlevania's strength lies in its ability to tell the story and develop its characters in its dialogue. And when I say yeah. dialogue, I literally mean like conversations between two people. Mm-hmm. Um, just like the incredible kind of discourse that takes place in so many various kind of contexts, uh, whether they're fighting, whether they're on a fucking carriage, going to another place, you mm. know, or just kind of like remarking um, uh, off, off-handed comments and all that. That's mm. really where the strength of this the show lies, right? Whether it's Trevor and Cypher who are just kind of like reflecting on the journey that they've had, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, one of my personal favorites, which is, is uh, Hector and um, Lenore, uh, yeah. one of my favorite kind of like pair ups there, you know, uh, whether it's, um, whether it's, uh, oh, um, what is the couple called in the council of Stygia? I can't remember. Uh, the warrior general and, and her, the logistician. Yeah. Yeah, like amazing, amazing scenes, mm. just sandwiched between like moments of amazing action as well. Where like they Isaac do... talking about blueberries, you know, <laughs> like something, something like silly, like or not not silly lah, but something like simple like that can be profound too. You yeah, know? absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and and you know, so you have all of that great, great work that's done there, right? Like it's world building and character development and moving the plot forward, all in the conversations alone, and yeah. then you throw on board. Alucard, who is the, to, in my opinion, at this point in time in history, the de facto pretty boy sad vampire trope, mm-hmm. right? Like brooding, bro- brooding boy in a castle, you know, drinking blood. Uh, Alucard from Castlevania is like the epitome of that right now. And, yeah. and I'm here for it. And I'm sure a lot of people are here for it. Um, for his particular storyline, I feel isn't as rewarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall in terms of his journey because, you know, uh, obviously season one and two, we focus a lot on Dracula and then, you know, Trevor uh, Trevor and Cypher kind of like take the place of that. So Alucard kind of plays like a backseat until, you know, the end endish uh, of, of season three where we kind of see more from him. Um, yeah. So we don't get that much from him and I feel like overall it doesn't play out as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But man, like once we, once it hits its stride, once we get that particular frame mm. in the episode where it's like the Avengers moment for, for Trevor, Cypher, and Alucard. Yeah, I'm just the, like, the splash page. Yeah, the splash yeah. page is just like, damn, okay. Um, just non-stop action from there, you know, so satisfying, so incredibly well drawn, uh, well orchestrated. Um, the soundtrack is kind of like amazing, mm-hmm. especially for the fight scene. Uh, what did take me by surprise was the inclusion of a final big bad so late into the game. Yeah, yeah, uh, a bit, a bit randomly stuck in there. Right? Yeah, and I, I wish they kind of explored that because, like, um, okay, no spoilers, guys, so we won't mention any names or anything of the sort. Yeah. Um, he's a bit player, right? Um, uh, throughout like four seasons, you barely see anything of him. Uh, for the reveal to be like that. Is is uh, I mean like it's cool. Don't get me wrong. The fights are cool as fuck, uh, mm-hmm. and and like visually, absolutely stunning. But I don't know where that kind of fits in. If anything, I want to kind of like pick on. It's gonna be that, mm-hmm. and my kind of personal question whether or not, um, some people should get second chances, right? Yeah. Um, based upon what they've done. Mm-hmm. So. 
Uh, sorry guys, I know it's very vague, but these are like huge, huge spoilers that that you, we just kind of want to throw out there. Yeah. Um. Um. I think like the the dizzying like um action climax in the penultimate episode is probably like you know the 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 heights of the series like, But yeah. in its finale, like I think it was also very brave for them to go back to the introspective, dialogue driven epilogue. You know, that yeah. they, they, they they did a bit like you know, for for a show that is often. And fascinatingly so, um, wallowed in grief and despair. Um, it's actually surprisingly welcome to say that Castlevania ends on a on on a refreshingly hopeful note. You know, yeah. Um, in a season that touches on a sense of you know aimlessness throughout its cast. You know, like where do we find meaning? It's 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 final meditation on on Trevor, Sifa, and Alucard's arcs. Uh, give them a satisfying send off that echoes that theme well and and for me Castlevania sticks the landing in such a way that it's easy to forgive the the, the beginning sluggish moments yeah uh, because the the journey uh earns uh, those moments and and retroactively redeems them mm-hmm. um, Castlevania also does plant a few seeds for future stories or spin-offs but I think season four ends with a sense of finality that I'm content with so, yeah 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 um great finale to a great show yeah definitely definitely I think if we look at what we got over four seasons, I, I do feel like the sluggishness that we feel mm-hmm. um, for the first half of this season wouldn't be as prominent if you were binge-watching this from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, for there, there will be some people like listening right now or, or, you know, maybe you've been hiding under a rock and haven't heard anything about Castlevania, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it would be as prominent if it kind of like bled in from season three onwards. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, all in all, like solid. Definitely the best thing that we've gotten out of uh, in terms of video game adaptations thus far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hands down, hands down. I, I mean, like, I think Warren Ellis and team have done an amazing job. Yeah. Um, give you everything like top quality animation, top quality soundtrack, great story, great character mm-hmm. development. Mm-hmm. You know, and so much so that at the end of four seasons, we only really have to nitpick at you know, these kind of like, I mean, they're not small things per se, but we are nitpicking overall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all my nitpicks, like um, uh, the villain at the end, which kind of like, you know, seems thrown in there, uh, yeah. or like Cypher's like wildly fluctuating power levels, you know, that's yeah. not like, I honestly, I can, I can like close one eye because like it works in, the, in those moments, you know. Yeah. Like, like Cypher, like going full Todoroki, like on, on everyone. Yeah. Uh, was a bit like, where did this come from and why, has she, why hasn't she been doing this? But okay, never mind. I'll let it go. It, yeah. it, it works in service of a cool action sequence. <laughs> it, it does. It does, right. But I yeah. think that's, that, that is, has to do with compensating for Trevor just getting beat up all the fucking time. Yeah. Right? Like, he takes so much punishment. Like, he takes more punishment than anybody else in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he keeps coming back for more. And you're totally right. It is it is a completely, like, My Hero Academia thing to have, you know, yeah. the, the main protagonist kind of, like, you know, um, just be used as a punching bag. <laughs> a little bit, lah. Yeah. 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 But uh, all in all, um, how would you rate uh, the final season of Castlevania? Uh, I'm going to give, I'm going to give the final season an 8. Okay. And I'm going to give the franchise as a whole a, a 9. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a 7.5 for me for the final season. Yeah. Franchise as a whole is probably 8.5. Mm. Like, probably, like, the best video game adaptation um, out there that's been made currently. I know Dota's Dragon Blood is getting a lot of hype right now. Yeah. But, like, it's too early to call. Uh, yeah, Like, yeah. for one season, um, not enough yet. 
yeah. maybe one day, maybe one day. It will be fascinating because there are so many similarities between um like surface surface level similarities between um Dragon's Blood and 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 Castlevania, right? Animation yeah. turn similar. Um the lore-wise, you're kind of gonna get the same vibes. It's, it's kind of like pure high fantasy. Um and uh, we'll we'll see we'll see how that kind of plays out, right? Like it it's gonna be a at this point in time it looks like it might be stiff competition, but you know we you never know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And do you do you, do you agree that it's best uh, video game ad- adaptation by far? Yes, by far, easily. Yeah. right. Uh, it's it's the holy grail that we've been looking for for like ages. Mm. Uh, and and now that it's wrapped up, like we can definitively say for sure, best video game adaptation. Definitely, yeah. Uh, same for me. Uh, the season is seven point five for me, eight for you. But overall, we are we are close to nine, like, Almost perfect as as a show. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, let's move on to the first part of ISIS Anime Corner, where you'll be highlighting probably your top picks. I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, what do you have for us this month? Well, uh, like I, I did, I mention that as the last genre. Yeah. So. I, like I mentioned in the last genre, this is, to my memory of watching anime, the most stacked spring season of all time. Mm. Uh, and just to give you a couple of numbers, right, rundown, there are, not including returning series, uh, just in terms of like fresh, new, original anime um, coming out this spring season, there are about 30-ish, right? Yep. Of those 30, by my estimation, a good 18 of them are good. A good mm-hmm. 12 of them are above good. And wow. like there are at least three uh, contenders for anime of the year, if not wow. like instant classics um, over time. Nice. Right. So okay. I'm going to be talking about those couple first and just kind of splitting them up. Uh, it's been... It's been it's been a lot of watching of anime <laughs> over this this last couple of months. Um, you know, and obviously we're going into this a bit late. The season is midway through. So some of these things may change. I think especially in the second half, some of the notable mentions might uh might go either way, but like confidently the four that I'm gonna talk about uh for this first for this first half are, are highly, highly recommended. Uh nice. we're gonna start off uh, my two top recommendations have a lot to do with um, stories that span across uh, vast, vast lengths of time. Um, I'm going to start off with the incredibly uh, popular and very, very hyped um, To Your Eternity. Okay. Uh, and uh, these are for, this is for fans of Mushishi. Uh, if you yeah. like the kind of like, well... Even even killed, well paced, quiet, uh, emotionally driven uh, anime. Then to your eternity is exactly for you, right? Nice. Uh, I I discovered. I was so happy that they kind of discovered this because I I actually read the manga when it came out a long some time back, uh, and I never quite finished it. Um, you know, because there were like these gaps in between. So when this came out, and I didn't kind of recognize the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, I started watching. I was just like, uh, so essentially, uh, at the beginning of the series, we meet an orb. It's known only as it. Uh, oh, okay. It is it is sent to Earth as an observer uh, from whom we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it is capable of changing forms um, 
according to the reflections of the being that it captures, right? Like essentially it imprints the thoughts and feelings of the creatures around it um, as, as it kind of like grows and develops and it, it evolves, you know? When it comes to Earth, uh, and, and, and this is kind of shown like at the begin- very, very beginning of the first episode um, in, in a very beautiful montage, uh, it first becomes a rock and then after it becomes the moss that grows on the rock, and then after that, um, you know, as it kind of progresses, it it uh, takes on the form of a injured wolf who happens to pass by the stone on which it is growing as a moss, oh. right? Um, from that transformation and having taken on the animal's disposition and memories, it returns to its home, to his owner, the to the wolf's original owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of begin this whole... Uh, stretch whereby you know he learns to live as a wolf and 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 um he he watches and observes his his owner who is a young who is a young boy okay. uh, and the story kind of develops from there but the re- where it really kind of takes off is when um the boy dies uh it, it's not not a spoiler guys <laughs> it happens early yeah it happens like all of this is literally in the first 15 minutes uh, of 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 the series uh, right. The boy dies, and he becomes the boy. It becomes the boy, okay. uh, and then that just sets off a kind of timeless. And by timeless, I mean like it spans kind of centuries, moving forward. A mm-hmm. story about a, a being uh, and its interactions with humankind, and the stories mm-hmm. and lessons that it learns from those interactions. Okay. Uh, incredibly beautiful, incredibly well paced. I I think this is something that, uh, it. Uh, I would behoove you to watch this on a, as big a screen as possible with as good a sound system as possible just mm-hmm. because of how this is this is the anime equivalent of an Oscar bait movie. Right. Okay. Essentially, right? Um, the soundtrack is incredibly important for framing the moments in time where and a lot of it has to do with um, the, the fact that um, it doesn't gain speech too much later on in the series, right? Mm. So a lot of it is actually monologue from the characters that it's interacting with, uh, or ah. it's observing or learning from, which is which makes it kind of special in in that way, right? Like a lot of the kind of like facial reactions are very very important, uh, you know, in 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 telling the story, in developing the character, and then the music mm. kind of frames the emotional notes of that, um, and it's not something that you. Is is common, right, in anime these days? Like the the closest thing I would I would say to to having that kind of like like emotional impact with all these kind of elements together is is Violet Evergarden, mm. uh, of which I've I've ranted and raved about for for like ever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, to your eternity, I I won't go into any more um detail than that. Uh, just that the premise is fascinating. The fact that you have a functionally immortal um, protagonist who constantly grows and evolves through interactions with with humankind yep. uh, is is very satisfying to mm-hmm. watch and to kind of like the the story grows as as he grows right or as it grows and uh, it is incredibly heartfelt in moments um, that are completely surprising because. You know, it, you it 
you, you've established the fact that it's not human, that it is it is much closer to an object than it is to a person. But there are moments in time where you you completely forget all of that and you're completely immersed in each and every individual story yeah. that it goes through. Nice. Right? Okay. Um it's it's fascinating and like in, in kind of incredible. Um it, it almost has an anthology kind of feel to it. Okay. Um uh, as you kind of like get on with the episodes, much like Mushishi. Uh, mm. But uh, I, I'm so curious because I, I never finished the manga in the end. So I'm I'm really curious to see uh, where this goes. We have a total of 20 episodes for this. Yep. Uh, and uh, right now, I think like we're seven or eight in already. I There's plenty more to go and I'm so, so excited to see how, how they take it. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So that's just the first one. Uh mm-hmm. Easily, easily, my my top pick of the season and maybe of the year. If it wasn't for the fact that this second title exists, uh, yeah. and it's called Vivi Fluoride Eyes Song, uh, okay. is the title. Uh, you guys can you can see that in the timestamps if you have no idea how to spell that. Yeah. Um. But uh, this is an yet another kind of like decade, century spending story, uh, with with a completely different twist. If if magic. Realism is what um, To Your Eternity is more about. This is like straight up sci-fi stuff. Uh, so to summarize, um, the synopsis is that a uh, hundred years into the future from when this story begins, highly evolved AIs are, are out to eradicate mankind. Um, and in a desperate bid to prevent this calamity from occurring, a scientist... Uh, in the future, uh, in this post-apocalyptic future, um, bets everything on on a, a kind of like remnant of the past, right? Uh, so we, what happens is that we turn the clock back a hundred years, and AIs are already an integral part of human society. You know, program with very kind of like specific missions and tasks that are meant to be carrying out uh, over the entire duration of their existence, right? Mm. We follow our protagonist Vivi, who is the first ever autonomous AI. And is a uh, is it, she's basically an idol AI. Okay. Um. So she's a songstress that is tasked with you know um entertaining and spreading happiness through her voice, and she works in a theme park. Uh. The problem is is that in this theme park, and and because she's just kind of like a novelty at this point in time, she hardly ever gets a proper audience. Uh. But despite that, because of her programming or her mm-hmm. kind of like. Raison d'etre, right? Like her essential function. Um, she, she, you know, strives to do her best and give the best performance that she has uh, and repeats this day after day for as long as it takes uh, yep. until one day an advanced AI form uh, from the future appears before her and then tries to enlist her help to prevent the, the kind of like AI-human war that right. is going to occur 100 years into the making. So she has kind of like no time to process this uh, and it gets thrown into that. And as oh. um, the story progresses, it becomes a toss-up between like this particular AI uh, messenger uh, coming back at like key points within history, mm-hmm. uh, within its history, like depending on how you're looking at the timeline, uh, within its history uh, for Vivi, who is completely unequipped uh, to deal with any of this, um, to intervene in the timeline to prevent the war in the future. And these kind of like slice of life moments where you have an essential kind of like um, this AI trying to ask itself, how do you sing your heart out when you don't have a heart? 
Yeah. Right. Uh, and and it it has it strikes this amazing kind of balance between, you know, this grand purpose uh, that she finds herself thrust into, and like the quiet, more um, existential considerations of uh, artificial intelligence that is coming to terms with what and who she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the fact that it kind of like spans this hundred years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is 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 fascinating, right? If To Your Eternity didn't exist in this particular season, uh, yeah. this would be wildly inventive. Uh, already uh, the fact that we only touch on certain key points um, right, right, right. Uh, is, is very familiar uh, if, you're, if you've already watched To Your Eternity, but for totally different reasons, right? Like that isn't plot-driven whatsoever. To Your Eternity is not plot-driven. It's completely character-driven. Uh, whereas for Vivi, uh, every key point in history is plot-driven, more so, and all the character stuff is done in that kind of slice-of-life stuff. Um, mm. I love the animation style. And as you would expect from an anime about an AI idol, the music is phenomenally catchy. So, 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 so good. Um, you know, the, like the bops of it kind of like stick in your head for, for hours after you've watched it. Uh, and just seeing her kind of, again, same kind of story, kind of grow, uh, kind of like deal with her insecurities about who she is at what she's supposed to be good at versus the times in which like she she's just like completely out of her depth in, in trying to prevent the future from happening uh, mm. is, is in- incredible. Like it, it, it's so interesting uh and this again would be completely stand out as enemy of the year if for the not for the fact that like to your eternity already exists in the same season wow um, and and like it's amazing that like anime lovers you take your pick you want to go like uh you know the sci-fi route you've got like vivi you want to go like magic rhythm slash fantasy route you've got to your eternity um we don't lose at all it's a win-win situation all around these two mm-hmm. are head and shoulders above uh, any of the picks that we have mm. for this spring season. Um, easily, easily like anime of the year contenders and easily, easily going to be a classic uh, moving forward in the future. Nice. Um, and some of the two most highly rated anime in a while, right? That's not like your Jujutsu Kaisen or your Kimetsu no Yaiba or mm. our Demon Slayer type anime. Yeah, because um, those are more like traditional, like shonen, like and it it, it adheres to hype lah. Whereas yeah. these are a bit more different, right? Yeah, these are a bit more different. Like, uh, I think on anime, my anime list, these are close to nine, like this uh, nine out of ten score. You know, eight like high eight, which tough is to is tough to do. And for to have like two of that in the same kind of season, is yeah. is kind of crazy. Uh, next awesome. up, I'm gonna talk about two even more kind of oddball uh, uh, animes that are my top picks. These may not be on the same kind of scale, but like are fascinating for their own reasons. I'm going to talk first about Mars Red, uh, okay. which is a period vampire story. Okay. So in the year 1923, a vampire crisis overtakes Tokyo and um, there's an artificial blood source that is, um, has been being traded around. And the population of vampires just like uh, surges through the roof uh, within the city itself. Um, the Japanese military creates yeah. a special forces uh, called Unit 16 that gathers vampires to work for the military itself. Uh, so they're using vampires to hunt vampires. Nothing kind of new, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And eventually this unit becomes uh, known as Code Zero. Okay. Um, 
so that's basically like the premise of the entire story. Uh, he and and the adventures of this particular um, unit of Code Zero. What is yeah. fascinating about Mars Red is the fact that it feels like theater. It ah. has an amazingly isometric kind of flat matte animation style that is constantly evocative of what it's like to watch a theater piece instead of watching anime. I see. Um, okay. Like the way that the set pieces, whether it's action or it's dialogue or it's just one of those sea- scenery chewing moments, right? It's, it's framed very much like someone would see with a camera on stage rather than a, a kind of like God view camera that a lot of animes like to uh, to to um, adopt, right? Gotcha. Uh, in addition to that, for the theatre nerds, right, uh, it is chock a block full of some of the best kind of voice acted lines from yeah, um, plays from Shakespeare to, you know, traditional Greek tragedies to, you know, more modern favorites. Um, mm-hmm. well, not modern favorites in our respect, but like in nineteen twenty three lah. Um, mm-hmm. and it's kind of mind blowing. Like, if you are a big fan of of like any of that, if you're a theater nerd, like this is for you. Like straight up, they pump as much theater references and kind of like. Uh, homages and tributes into Mars into a vampire story as possible, and it's kind of mind blowing. Wow, uh, how much they do that! And in addition to that, like I, some of, I'm familiar with some of that. I, I'm not that big of a theater nerd, um, yeah. but some of them being delivered in Japanese by an amazing voice cast is like kind of next level stuff, right? Right, like it is. It, it's pretty mind blowing the kind of emotional delivery that you can get from that because it's in Japanese even though the lines are, are something that we are familiar with in English uh, mm. and you get that like really really early on um, paired with the fact that the vampires that you meet despite the fact that they are the villains are wholly fleshed out characters that you can sympathize with they humanize non-human characters uh, mm. who are wildly wildly powerful like every time there's combat involving a vampire right they're just so overpowered, which makes for some of the most like gorgeous action set pieces. Um in one of the most unique kind of art styles to come out in a while. Right. Um and, and for that those particular reasons and those are very specific reasons, uh Mars Red is is one of my top picks. Um the the story um as it stands right now the story is kind of slow. Uh, in terms of like the way that it's unfolding, like we are only kind of getting to uh, midway through the second act um, of a of a thirteen episode series, so it it is kind of slow. But like just for the visual aspect of it, and if you just want to nerd out about the other stuff yeah. and the way that they frame it, like it's wildly wildly fascinating on those levels. <clears throat> Nice. Yeah. So, uh, definitely catch Mars Red if you're into get that kind of thing. Um, you know, uh, there are plenty of like great vampire stuff that comes out, but this is this is unique. Uh, you know, uh, as far as what we've gotten over the years. Uh, wow, it's it's like True Blood meets Barry meets like sci-fi shit. Like, it sounds incredible. Yeah, it is. It is like <laughs> yeah. Um, just the first episode alone will kind of like take you. Uh, yeah. Despite the fact you you don't really know what's going on and and the plot like doesn't really unfold to to any degree, it's like wow, why is it so? It, it's oddly specific in its appeal, 
Um, mm. And 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 uh, for that, like I highly recommend it and and really enjoy it, despite the fact that it's not particularly popular among mainstream audiences at the moment. Uh, okay. And and that's why I'm kind of like ranking it below um, to your eternity and VV. Nice. Uh, okay. On to even more strange things. Uh, my next up for um, this season is called Odd Taxi. Uh, I believe I, I spoke with Hidze about this because I think this is one that he's going to love yeah. specifically. So Odd Taxi is kind of like the latest in anthropomorphic <laughs> anthropomorphic uh, in the line of like B-Stars uh, oh, and, okay. and, and uh, you know Agretsuko. You have um, essentially an anthropomorphic Tokyo, right? And we follow... Uh, our protagonist, who is a walrus called Odokawa, who is eccentric and blunt and lives a relatively normal life as a taxi driver in Tokyo. Uh, okay. he, um, he, so, yeah, so he drives taxi for a living and he, he meets, you know, unique individuals along the way. There's the jobless, um, kind of like uh, viral chasing hippo called Kabasawa. You know, and then there's a llama nurse, uh, and uh, there is, is a struggling comedic duo called Homo Sapiens. You know, a delinquent. His best friend is a a gorilla doctor, uh, and he frequents this izakaya. Um, you know that that has a heron and and so on. So like a whole cast of like characters, um, amidst the slice of life that is going on in the first couple of episodes is an overhanging mystery about a missing schoolgirl. And um, this mystery is about to turn Odokawa's fairly simple everyday life upside down Mm -hmm. um, because the police eventually track uh, leads about this missing girl back to him. Uh, And it, he gets embroiled with corrupt policemen and the investigation and uh, the Yakuza uh, at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right? And it it is set in like a very strange if somewhat familiar Tokyo. Uh, And it is a bizarre story about a humble taxi driver that that okay what 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 what's taken me about odd taxi is that there is so much hidden beneath the veneer of this very banal existence of a, a taxi driver right the dialogue itself is sharp and witty in a way that's very i guess tarantino esque if 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 I, I could call it anything Interesting. Um, and um there are moments in time where the story hints at least where we are now at halfway through the season yeah uh, that um, despite the fact that everybody seems to be an anthropomorphic animal, that okay. might not actually be the case. Um, hmm. And it might very well be that that's just how Odokawa sees the world because there are hints that there are there's a hidden trauma that he has experienced recently that has turned his worldview as such. And you don't ah. kind of realize this as it unfolds. Like third episode in, you kind of piece that together by paying attention to the conversations that he has mm-hmm. and how one-sided his worldview actually is right. uh, and the way the responses of the of the people he's talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that adds up for a very, very oddly strange mystery that is far oh. deeper than... Um, 
uh, you can initially kind of give it credit for. Yeah. Uh, you know, so right now I think we're six episodes in, and I'm I'm like kind of hooked, right? Because at the same time, like you're you you know from the onset you're not going to get the kind of like action sequences or the kind of like set pieces that you're you're gonna get from, you know, like a missing ghost story or or from like a cop drama or anything of the sort. Um, it's going to take the pace that it's going to take, and that's established really, really early. So it is up to you as the audience to kind of piece everything together from these really minute details that are just thrown in to the way that he sees the world on screen, or even like the 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 monologue that he has in his head, or the uh, uh, top uh, topics of conversation with the people around him. Yeah, and it's this amazing kind of puzzle that is at once fascinating, if somewhat frustrating. Uh, but that all just kind of adds up to like you know um uh, this this amazing kind of puzzle of an anime that I can't wait to see the resolution of just because of how in- how subtly smart it is, mm-hmm. um and yeah yeah so Art Taxi is kind of my fourth pick uh of the season for sure these are my top four, uh two of which are easily recognizable as going as some of the best anime that we've gotten in a while. Uh, okay. And two of which are very odd, unique um, uh, series that that uh, are, are, are stand out because they've done something different other than your usual shonen or all of that. Um, so yeah, so so these four in particular, uh, To Your Eternity, Vivi, Mars Red, and Odd Taxi, highly, highly recommend uh, my personal picks for this very stacked spring season. And mm-hmm. after we've done... Uh, quick hits. I'll I'll kind of like dump the rest of the like good shonen slash isekai slash comedy stuff that are really good and you should watch them anyway. But like you know, these are just the hidden trailers above the rest. Uh, picks gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, four very interesting picks for part one of Anime Corner, and Isa will be back right after quick hits for part two of Anime Corner, as he's mentioned. Yep. Uh, but I'm gonna delve into quick hits right now. Um. I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as possible. But the first topic, um, I think I'm going to be talking about it quite a bit. It is The Underground Railroad on Amazon Prime by Oscar winner Barry Jenkins, who you may know uh, won uh, for Moonlight, Mm -hmm. Best Picture. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost almost usurped by uh, La La Land, but not (laughs) quite. Uh, And then, um, of course, If Beale Street Could Talk was another one of his uh, famous films. But The Underground Railroad is a limited series adaptation of Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize-winning 2016 novel, which imagines the 19th century underground railroad <laughs> as a literal steampunk railroad beneath southern soil that black people used to escape slavery. Yeah. Um, of course, the underground railroad was more of a metaphor uh, and a network of safe houses and, and, and stuff like that. But this is a piece of art history. You know, uh, that imagines a literal railroad. So it kind of transcends a blunt allegory with hauntingly magical realism mm. uh, and amazing cinematography. Uh, and at the same time, does not shy away from depicting the horrors of slavery in America. Um, while Whitehead's prose is engaging, uh, Jenkins translates his words with a lot of silent visuals yeah. and haunting music uh, by Nicholas Brittle. Um, some are searing and gruesome while others are beautiful and mesmerizing and poetic, and at certain times, they're both. Um, I think in adapting Colson Whitehead's novel to the TV screen, Barry Jenkins has molded something harrowing, emotional, and almost too big 
to take in at once. Um, the series primarily follows Cora, who was just 10 years old when her slave mother Mabel left her, mm-hmm. uh, running away from the plantation to the north, never to be seen again. Um, that betrayal has left a wound in the adult Cora, uh, and a rage has kind of fested there. Um, Cora now considers her mother a monster and herself a blight to the world because you know she feels abandoned and she feels unworthy. To complete her journey out of slavery, she has to escape not just the plantation, uh, but the hate that she's latched onto Mabel, as well as her own PTSD from being a slave. Um, she must learn to forgive and to see herself as a whole again, you know, and to trust again. For these reasons, I think Whitehead and Jenkins's uh, The Underground Railroad isn't necessarily a story of slavery and dehumanization, mm-hmm. but it's a story of rehumanization. Um, this is why the series is distinct from shows like um, Them or movies like Antebellum, yeah. which I have criticized as degradation porn, yeah. almost exploiting slavery, not so much educating you on the horrors of slavery. Yeah. Um, I think the Underground Railroad doesn't shy away from atrocity, mm-hmm. but it is fundamentally used as a canvas for a journey towards freedom. Uh, and not just freedom from slavers, but also freedom from trauma and freedom from generational regret. Yeah. I think Jenkins has assembled an amazing supporting cast here, which includes uh, William Jackson Harper from uh, The Good Place, mm-hmm. uh, who plays chorus love interest royal early on. There is Lily Rabe, uh, who chills the screen as Ethel, mm. uh, who is the wife of a North Carolina abolitionist. Um, Aaron Pierre is particularly affecting as Cora's early confidant, Caesar. Uh, but Cora is the fulcrum of the series, and the remarkable Mbedu, uh, that's the actress that plays her, uh, brings her to life with a quiet determination and almost plays her like a cipher. Yeah. Like, you know, um, she moves as if she's carrying the crushing weight of, you know, unseen chains uh, forged over centuries. And she's neither passive nor reactive. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in, in Moonlight and in if Bill Street could talk, Jenkins would sometimes have characters look directly into the lens, almost posing for a portrait, you know, yeah. um, making a more emotional uh, connection with the viewer. You know, you're forced to look into their eyes and see, the, and see them as people. I think he applies this technique here, and it's impressive how effectively it gets us inside the head of Cora's thoughts without using words to explain what Cora is thinking of, or, or even dialogue, you know. So we intimately share her, her rare moments of joy and all too frequent feelings of horror. Um, filmmakers can sometimes resort to the crutch of voiceover narration, right, mm-hmm. when adapting a novel. Yeah. You know, they, they just put the prose on there. But, but Jenkins, I think, never abandons the cinematic language. Um, over the course of, you know, her incredible, awful journey, Cora becomes, you know, a, a bit of a reluctant living witness to America's worst ills. Admittedly, alt-universe America, wor- uh, worst ills, you know, mm-hmm. each new state is reimagined, you know, each new state or community or, uh, or enemy. Cora learns the, the, the visceral price of American racism as it chips away at her resolve and everything that she loves or... Or, or could love if, if given a chance to. So without the monologuing perspective uh, that Whitehead's novel affords, Cora, yeah. um, the actress has an astonishingly difficult job in conveying the nuances of her thoughts. Um, and yet both her and Jenkins uh, succeed remarkably sometimes. At other times, it still feels a bit like a cipher. So that's a bit of a complaint there. Yeah. Um, alongside you know the humanization of everyone, like Jenkins is also 
a virtual so like landscape artist you know <laughs> he has this lingering haunting shots of scenery yeah. and landscape you know like the the scotch turf in tennessee or the fruitful vineyards in indiana for example it's as if he is using the land not the people to speak to us uh, to tell us the condition of america's soul you know of america's soul um it's a very challenging elliptical overwhelmingly uh just overwhelming uh, series you know um while his book is episodic, so that's good for a TV series. So it lends itself to a 10-part translation. So, you know, we begin on the Georgia cotton plantation where Cora and Caesar are forced to work. Mm -hmm. Then they escape on the railroad. The pair make stops in alt-universe mirror reflections of South Carolina where slaves are educated and largely treated as members of polite society. But with a get-out twist, um, there is North Carolina where non-whites have been banned altogether. Uh, then they take, you know, um, emotional and geographic detours to en route to their freedom. Yeah. So each stop is a digression into the different facets of racism. You know, some of them seem more benign than others, like in South Carolina, for example, but they really all are insidious and ugly underneath. Mm. The vast sprawl of the series means that you shouldn't binge the Underground Railroad. It is, I think, too narratively, visually, and sonically dense yeah. and <laughs> kind of too meticulously calibrated or too heavy uh, to appreciate in one consumption. Yeah. Um, but I think like these recreations of Black suffering uh, doesn't exist for exploitation, mm -hmm. but rather as chilling reminders of what we are capable of at our worst which in turn allows the Underground Railroad to provide glimpses of what we are uh, and what we are capable of at our best as well, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, the moments of kindness stick out a, a bit more. However weighty or gruesome the miniseries feels, I think the audience never escapes the rehumanizing message that Jenkins imparts, you know. By, yeah. by taking this journey with Cora, she learns about the ordeals that her mother probably confronted she learns to forgive her mom. She rehumanizes re herself um, by showing the joy and laughter and the love and determination mm -hmm. mixed in with the horrors of historical slaves. You know, um, they 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 no longer are uh, like the, the series doesn't de depict black people as suffering props yeah. for white consumption and gives them dignity. That if if there is a flaw in this mini series, it's perhaps that. Its pacing is so unusually elliptical that it might turn some people off. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, there's one particular episode that focuses on, on of all people, Richway, who is who is a white uh, slave hunter. Yeah. Um, he has a backstory episode dedicated just to him, uh -huh. whereas there are no backstory episodes like dedicated to any of the black people. Yeah. It seems a bit out of place and unnecessary in the grand scheme of things, despite mm -hmm. the fact that Richway's backstory is compelling. Yeah. But you know, it just feels like he takes up too much screen time. So. In light of uh, complaints and uh, the, the the faults, uh, however minor, uh, I I do acknowledge it is challenging. Yeah, I personally would give this a seven point five out of ten because I really enjoyed the artistic ambition of it. Yeah. even if Barry Jenkins doesn't quite nail um, television pacing, mm. uh, if if that's a thing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, seven point five out of ten. Uh, you've seen the first six episodes of this. What do you think of that? Yeah. So right? I I've just finished. Let me see. Chapter seven, so Fanny. Fanny Briggs is the one that I just finished. Oh, uh, the little girl, right? Yeah, yeah the little yeah. girl one. Um, yeah. It was okay. So, um, going through the first episode, I remember very clearly. Um, uh, it it felt like what I'm gonna call twelve years a slave trauma. Yeah, yeah. Right, like the first episode really felt like I was just rewatching twelve years a slave again. Mm -hmm. Um, and and. 
that was deeply un- uncomfortable, right? Because, and we've talked about 12 Years a Slave before. Uh, well, yeah. at least in our private conversations we have. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and, and Steve McQueen, who directed Small X and stuff like that, you know, yeah. like we've, we've talked about the director too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, it took a, a fair while for me to kind of like relax a little, like be, be able to be objective about like um, um, what I was watching here. Um, mm. Jenkins has a singular eye. For things, yeah. it is yeah. very unique and very um. Y- you know when it's him, right? Like if he's the guy, yeah. if, he's, if he's the guy behind the camera, uh. Mm-hmm. And and I I think like a lot of the time, him allowing the setting to tell the story, does alleviate that feeling of, um, deprivation porn, right? Uh, yeah. All in all, I do enjoy the way that this series is emotionally wrought across what I've seen thus far. Yeah. There are pacing problems for sure. I, I think like any kind of limited series where you have such a wide gap between like the longest being what, 77 minutes and like mm-hmm. 20 minutes for the shortest one or was it like 15 minutes or so? Does yeah give you an indication that there is kind of like a pacing issue, it's very hard to kind of get into that um, when um, the the length of each episode varies so widely, right? Like, I understand you want to keep it neat to what you're trying to say for that particular locale, right? And, mm-hmm. and to be fair, everything is a locale, right? Like, yeah. the chapters are all categorized as that. Um, but it feels wildly uneven yeah. in that sense. Uh, that being said, I think there are some amazing performances here. I think Mbedu mm. is crazy, crazy good at what she yeah. does. I love her interaction with, with Royal. Uh, mm. And if anything else, right, anytime is Mbedu and, and uh, Joel Edgerton, like, damn. Like, yeah. that, is, that, is, that is so much tension just, like, emanating from the screen that it is uncomfortable. It is impossible not to be, like, shifting in your seat. You know, if you're sitting down. Um, yeah. And it is these kind of like really kind of key points and uh, key moments where you are just so wrapped up in the the density of the moment, right? The, te- mm. the tension of the moment, right? Uh, and how long Jenkins can drag that out without you kind of like, oh my God, I can't take this anymore and leaving. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's a bit of a masterclass in that. Like, I think like there is something special in terms of his style of storytelling, uh, in in his kind of like cinematic uh vocabulary that yeah. is extremely leading in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I have to agree. Like, it, this is so dense. It yeah. took me way longer than I expected to get past seven episodes. Yeah. Um, and. I don't know if this was one of the things that I can say I enjoy. I don't think you, yeah, yeah, you know you're not I mean? supposed to, yeah, you're not supposed to enjoy yeah, a story, right? You can't, yeah. yeah, you can't, you can't say that. And I, in very, it's not that you can't say that, you can't enjoy it, right? Like, yeah. you can appreciate the artistry, the of, it, artistry right? of it. Yeah. Um, I, but where I am in the story right now in episode seven, I don't know if the messaging in its totality is strong enough or good enough. Mm. Despite the fact that, like, the, the visual flourish is something to, to marvel at. 
Um, yeah. yeah, just my thoughts on that. So I, I, I'm, I'm gonna withhold from kind of giving it a rating just because I, I, I don't mm. think I've gotten to the point where it makes sense to me to do so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I give it a good rating, which is seven point five. But I do have to say that from reading interviews with a lot of filmmakers when they talk about, you know, like streaming TV is where it's at right now. We're all gonna do a prestige drama, a ten-hour movie, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Filmmakers are great filmmakers, they might not necessarily understand how to pace a television show. Yeah. Uh, that is the probably the one big complaint I have from the big filmmakers that have moved on to TV. Mm-hmm. They just don't know how to do TV. TV is a different animal and perhaps like, you know, you may need to like watch like a Sopranos or Breaking Bad or something. <laughs> and I can't understand how to mix in the, the cinematography of filmmaking uh, alongside uh, television pacing. So yeah. One, one complaint. Uh, next up, we'll be moving on to Modoc, which is on Hulu. But if you have Disney Plus, uh, mm-hmm. you can watch it on Disney Plus Star. This is something I kind of want to point out to a lot of people. Like, you don't have Hulu, right? But most of Hulu stuff is on Disney Plus in yep. Singapore. It's, it's under the Star banner, so do check it out. Um, this is a Modoc that's created by Patton Oswalt. Uh, as well as animated by the stu- by the studio who did uh, Robot Chicken. <laughs> yeah. So um, Modok is kind of a stop motion irreverent supervillain comedy. It follows the angry giant head in a floating chair, uh, <laughs> who who loses control of his evil organization AIM and struggles with family life in suburban New Jersey. Yeah. It's kind of a goofy parody of slop husband sitcoms and workplace <laughs> sitcoms yeah. um, you know if the slop husband was a mental organism designed only for killing uh, it's both absolutely weird and wonderful uh, if you don't know what slop husband sitcoms are think of like you know married children king of queens you know where you know uh, you, you get the idea. <laughs> um, so like, it kind of focuses on his marital troubles. It focuses on him becoming an outcast in a villain community. Uh, Modoc is kind of a silly treat that has plenty of deep-cut Marvel Comics jokes uh, yeah. that is great for fans. Uh, and it's also, you know, just a, like a really fun, breezy show that never takes itself seriously, you know. It, it, it does share a studio and aesthetic with Robot Chicken, but this series is uh, more, I think, more than Robot Chicken. It's, it's more than just a slew of references or geeky punchlines. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I think, more in line once we get into the emotional core of the show, more in line with the absurdist character-based humor of something like American Dad mm. or Solar Opposites, uh, where instead of being a, like a bunch of sci-fi nonsense where nothing matters, like Rick and Morty, it's a bunch of sci-fi nonsense that takes its emotion seriously. <laughs> um, some of the Marvel stuff is used to set up jokes that comic nerds in particular will appreciate more than others, but there's plenty of humor for everyone to enjoy too. Yeah. Um, this version of Modoc is petty and small and bitter over the fact that life hasn't given him what he thinks he deserves. Uh, specifically, he deserves the entire world, but he does have a wife. Uh, he does have two kids. He does have a loyal robot servant. Uh, so he has it good, but he just doesn't realize it, you know. Um, it's a great setup for a stop husband sitcom formula and, and Modoc is very, very funny. Um, there's a great episode where Modoc is barred from the cool supervillain nightclub who, you know, that's frequented by Madam Mask and Mr. Sinister because he, <laughs> he screwed up. So so he drowns his sorrows at the bar of no name and befriends like some other loser villains of the Marvel Universe. There's another joke that involves Modoc's wife, Jody being asked to dress up as a Latina icon. So she dresses up as Carmen Sandiego, which is hilarious. <laughs> uh, plus, you know, lots of other, you know, hilarious running gags that will take too long to explain. Uh, like, 
it, it just trust me on that like the writing gags are funny la. and and the overarching plots are fun too it, it involves new corporate owners a google-like entity uh that has bought over aim from modok uh <laughs> so you know yeah uh, he's trying to deal with like a uh, corporate overreach here uh, then there's also a younger version of Modoc from the past who jumps to the future, who tries to des- destroy his future self's family life because he thinks that it's this f- the family that's holding Modoc back from world domination. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a weird and wonderful piece of comedy, but it's also surprisingly heartfelt with a great blend of rapid fire humor alongside and touching family dynamics. So, uh, and also, right, with all due respect to that second last episode of Castlevania. Like the greatest piece of animated action <laughs> in 2021 actually belongs to Modoc. Like when you see it, you see what I mean. It's an absolutely bonkers, super creative battle that I've honestly never seen on like depicted before. Um, all in all, Modoc is basically Marvel's version of like the Venture Brothers. So, oh. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm probably giving this a, a seven out of ten, but it is very strong. Like the seven out of ten isn't indicative of the highs. So, like when you like it is highest moments, right? It's an S tier show. Oh, but it wow. also has like but it also has some jokes that miss. Yeah. So it, it's give and take. Like, but this is real potential to be a real like cult classic as it goes forward. Nice, nice, nice. Have you caught any bit of Modoc on, on Disney Plus? I watched the first episode. Oh, uh, you're releasing it weekly, yeah. Yeah, but... yeah. I, I I watched the first episode. Uh and yeah, that was basically it for me. Uh, yeah. I I found it funny. I mean, like as as a kind of pilot, like it, it totally works, right? And mm-hmm. and like Modok, if if you are familiar with what he does in the comics, like this isn't particularly off brand at all, you know. Yeah. So I I definitely enjoyed that. Uh, I'm looking forward to to doing more. And honestly, Marvel's kind of killing it <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and going to that, and I'm really glad that like it it looks like and it sounds like from from what you've just told us. Um, that even like the really fringe stuff is doing very well. Yeah. Right. Uh. So yeah, I've only got the first episode. I I did enjoy it. Um. I don't think any of the highs uh necessarily in the first episode per se. Uh. Mm. But it it was a good kind of like chuckle for the for the for its runtime, and nice. uh, I'm looking yeah. forward to see this this fight battle. I mean, like honestly, animation wise, we have been spoiled over the last two years or so. With some mm-hmm. of like the most amazing fight sequences, mm-hmm. um. So yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, definitely. Like uh, when you get to the fight scene, you know what I mean, uh, because it's it's the craziest thing I've ever seen put put to screen in a superhero context. Yeah, like it's it's absolutely nuts. What what a battle to include in this like <laughs> random quirky show. You know? Uh, anyways, uh, we're moving on to another piece of animation. This is Adventure Time: Distant Lands. Uh, the third episode entitled "Together Again." Um, as you know, Adventure Time, you know. The, the series proper ended, but yep. it's brought back on HBO Max for a quarterly mini series of hour-long specials called Distant Lands. You know, so it's every three months they'll release a one-hour-long episode. So it, it started off with a a, B, a delightful BMO episode. Three months ago, I talked about the Marceline Princess Bubblegum mm-hmm. episode. Uh, this third one is called Together Again, and it, re- it reunites Finn the human and Jake the dog, you know, the main two stars of the series, after their splits in the series finale uh, for their quote-unquote biggest adventure ever. Um, without spoiling anything, you know, that, that, you know, the tagline, the hyperbolic biggest adventure ever, I kind of took 
with a grain of salt, you know. Yeah. Like it's just to hype the show. Uh, but like that description is almost like an insane understatement because it really is true. This is the biggest adventure ever, and I I can't spoil it because there's a twist that happens like about ten minutes in that I really didn't see coming. Uh, and it's huge, and it kind of changes the canon of the show. Oh, wow. Um, it the the special kind of starts off like simply enough with like Finn and Jake once again teaming up uh, for their old shenanigans, you know, attempting to make off with some ice cream. They encounter various classic obstacles. There is the Ice King and his latest terrible, poorly executed princess kidnapping plot. Um, <laughs> if, if you followed with the plot of the series, like, all that stuff kind of doesn't mesh with the current status quo. Like, that stuff is season one stuff, you know. And, and there's a good reason for that, which will become readily apparent about 10 minutes in. There's something really weird going on with the timeline. Uh, and it's not a continuity error. It's something else. It's, oh. it's, it's something that I can't spoil, but it's really good, you know. And, and what follows is a whirlwind tour through fantastical worlds with Finn in search of Jake in order to be, as the title states together again it's basically everything you could want out of a special focusing on finn and jake specifically you know the two stars of adventure time that kickstarted this whole thing uh, it has powerful world shaking force uh, goofy jokes fan favorite characters great callbacks uh, and the center of it you know the, the brotherly love of the two characters um mm -hmm. and and after so much time without the dynamic of Finn and Jake at the forefront of Adventure Time, because the Adventure Time kind of sprawled out into an ensemble show, you know, there were yeah. some episodes that are not even focused on Finn and Jake. It's truly nice to spend an hour with the two of them once more. Like every twist and turn and every single piece of plot development serves to reinforce the fact that these two have like a really special bond that goes beyond what most of the other folks in Adventure Time have. Mm -hmm. um, as with every Distant Lands episode, this was a welcome return to, to a universe that kind of means a lot to me uh, as, I, as I was rediscovering like, you know, adult animation back in the mid-2000s mm -hmm. and to many others. Uh, and this is probably the best of uh, Distant Lands episodes. I'm giving this a 9 out of 10. Very, very highly rated. Wow. Uh, if only because like they actually threw me for a loop like, with a couple of twists that I didn't see coming and really kind of shook up the foundation and, and the canon of the show in general. Mm -hmm. So this is a very consequential episode that I can't spoil. It's a 9 out of 10 for me. Damn. Damn. Okay. Uh, next up, let's talk. Let's go back to Netflix. Let's talk about the Army of the Dead. Uh, so yeah. for, it follows the <laughs> Snyder Cut. Um, Army of the Dead is Zack Snyder's latest film. Yeah. Uh, and it, it marks a return to the zombie genre for the very divisive filmmaker. Um, I personally have like mixed to negative feelings on all his films, except for one movie. Um, I feel that Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead mm -hmm. remake mm -hmm. is an instant classic. It's one of the best modern zombie movies ever made. I truly do. I agree. If you, if you ask me to rank like the top three zombie movies of the 21st century, it'll probably be like uh, 28 Days Later, mm -hmm. Train to Busan, mm -hmm. and Dawn of the Dead is right up there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. it's really good. So with that in mind, I had like super high hopes, you know, that a turn away from Superman and Batman and stuff like that back into the genre that he got his start in would kind of rekindle the magic I saw in Snyder. Mm. Um, Army of the Dead is essentially a Vegas heist film set during a zombie apocalypse. Mm. Uh, we follow Scott Ward, uh, played by Dave Batista, the former wrestler, uh, a former zombie, uh, a former zombie war hero who is now flipping burgers. Uh, Ward is approached by a casino boss named Bly Tanaka with the ultimate proposition to break into a zombie-infested quarantine zone to retrieve $200 million 
sitting in a vault beneath the Las Vegas Strip before the city is nuked by the government in 32 hours. Um, we've kind of seen a similar premise uh, with Peninsula. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do have to say, like, on, on the plus side, right, this movie is, is much, much more fun than, than Peninsula. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wild, it's zany, and, and it's kind of darkly twisted piece of ultra-violent escapism. Uh, it's entirely a pleasing popcorn splatter fest. Mm-hmm. I think Army of the Dead works best when Snyder leans into the fun. Uh, however, when he aims for more emotional territory, uh, the film really starts to drag. Yeah. Um, when it's fun, it's fun. When it's boring, it's super boring. Like Snyder is is just not good at stuff like that. You know, the emotional parts of the film feel like really overwrought mm-hmm. and worst of all tedious. Mm-hmm. And Army of the Dead, like kind of on the flip side, you know, Army of the Dead offers like great command of action, genuinely great dark humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as per usual, the drama, the leaps in logic, the plot holes, uh, the interesting concepts that introduce and yet remain unexplored, they're all like a very typical Zack Snyder weaknesses that you'll find in yes. this. Yeah. Um, I give Peninsula a five, but I'll give Army of the Dead a 5.5 just because of the fun factor. Yeah. Uh, what, about, what, what about you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Not a big fan of Zack Snyder. I think we've kind of established that. Dawn of the Dead is one exception. <clears throat> and I did enjoy Sucker Punch. Right? Uh, not that I want to see the Snyder cut of Sucker Punch. Uh, I think it, it can stay where it is. Um, but that being said, how did this movie become so long? Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, I, I literally got tired after mm. an hour and a half. And I was just like, how long more is this? Like, I don't even know where I am at in terms of like, what act is this necessarily? Yeah, um, the, the first 45 minutes were absolute killer. You know? yeah. If only they could have kept that pace, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. like you get your zombie world building, solid. Yeah. You get your heist get together, solid. Backstories for all the characters, solid. All good stuff, right? And then like, it, in, the, in the midst of like, the action kind of picking up, it all kind of turns to shit. Um, yeah, and, and honestly, like, uh, it was problematic for me in particular. I know a lot of people are talking about the dead pixel kind of, like, mm. thing with the cameras and stuff like that. Very honestly, for me, on my particular TV, it was hard to watch certain scenes that I couldn't, like, it was completely out of focus. Um, yep. And that really kind of brought me out of that. Like, I understand you've got a particular vision for it. Snyder always has a particular vision for whatever he is he's doing. Uh, in, it's unfortunate in this case that it's a very blurry vision and that is both literal and metaphorical um, yeah. and like if he had chosen to keep it fun right mm-hmm. like you know this would have been like up there with Dawn of the Dead like easily right it's an interesting yeah. premise um, despite the fact that Peninsula had kind of already done that mm-hmm. uh, but the moment you want to one up, like baby zombie, really? Yeah, yeah. Ro- okay, so you want baby zombie, you want robot zombies, you want uh tiger zombies, and yep. you want to stuff that all into this like, you know, zombies are procreating now, and they have their own kind of like animalistic hierarchy kind of. No need yeah. lah. Hey, please lah, please lah. Right, like yeah. you can barely tell a what should be a very straight up simple zombie heist movie. Zombie heist movie, that one phrase in and of itself should be hooked. It should hook yeah. you. But you can barely tell that in the amount of time a normal movie would take. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm just like, seriously, 
yeah. that being said, Take Notaro is like so great, great in this. Uh, yes. and, and I was just reading about how they basically like just inserted her into the film without seeing almost anyone. Yeah. Which is great. Um, Dave Bautista continues to surprise he, and flex his acting prowess. The best pro wrestler actor out yeah. there. No offense to The Rock or to John Cena. Yeah. Like, Dave Bautista is an actual actor. He is an he's actual not, actor. He, he's not an action star. He's an actor. Yeah. It is, in, yeah. it is insane the kind of performances that he's been able to deliver in the most ridiculous kind of settings, right? Whether you yeah. want to, whether it's in, in Guardians of the Galaxy or like Blade Runner, man. Blade Runner is like yeah. top notch. Like even in something as silly as Army of the Dead, right? He had some moments where I was just blown away, yeah. absolutely blown away, right? Like the the beginning scene with the wife and and daughter, like damn, yeah. right? Yeah. The broody kind of scenery chewing that he kind of does, awesome. Like so mm-hmm. so 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 good. Uh, and I think it's kind of a waste to have all yeah. those moments chucked into something that's overlong and overwrought and overthought. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like it's it's a five for me. Like yeah. I I don't think it did any much better than Peninsula, other yeah. than for like key kind of fun moments and the humor. There are certain points where the humor is just on point. Like using mm-hmm. zombies as as to to trip traps that was hilariously funny. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah. Uh. There's that and like really really didn't like the daughter's character. Like for what? Mm. Like you're not. You literally don't add anything to the story except complications that are, are mm-hmm. unnecessary and added another like 30 minutes to the show when it didn't need to be. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, basically, it's meh, you know, yeah, unfortunately. Agreed. Yeah, um, yeah, same, like both a meh reaction, but, you know, I, first hour is fun. Uh, yeah. You might, you might just want to like, leave it at that you just want to watch the first hour and then like go away <laughs> that'll be that'll be great um i was talking to i was talking to i i, I went to like hardy's house like last week or something yeah. and he said like army of dead it was like mad fun and i was like have you finished it and it's like no i only watched like the first half hour i was like finish oh, it and get back yeah. finish it and get back to me yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally like like a week later like changed his opinion on it yeah. yeah but yeah it does start out fun he, he could i mean like you could watch it all the way until they enter the city and there could be a full movie in and of itself and i would be satisfied yeah. You know what I mean? Just like as a pure conceptual kind of pilot, that would totally yeah. work. And then it just Agreed. goes downhill from there. Agreed. Uh, and uh, next up, let's move on to a Netflix show called Jupiter's Legacy. Mm. It is adapted from Mark Millar's uh, hit image comic series of the same name. The show follows a large cast of superheroes that form the Union of Justice back in the 1930s, uh, a bit of a GSA analog. Um, after mysteriously gaining powerful abilities. Uh, This show operates in multiple timelines, one following the lead-up to the Union of Justice gaining their abilities and forming a super team. The other timeline takes place in the present and follows these superheroes who are well past their prime and their children born into superherodom, trying to find their own place in the world outside of their famous familial footsteps. Uh, The Jupiter's Legacy comic is overall, I think, a pretty solid deconstruction of Golden Age superheroes. Yeah. Um, while the comic doesn't necessarily get as deep as it could and sometimes proves a bit derivative, there's a lot of really interesting, solid stuff in it that made Netflix's adaptation of the property seem genuinely promising. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think like this first season proves to be a really anemic adaptation that's eclipsed by many other similar shows. Yeah. Um, 
first off, the idea of an off-brand GSA or Justice League trying to use realistic superheroes to tackle modern socio-political issues. You know, the deconstruction of the superhero myth sounds awfully familiar and done to death at the point. You know, you have the really high bars like Watchmen, mm. like The Boys. Then mm. you have the middle tier bars which are really good but not perfect, like yeah. Umbrella Academy and Invincible, yeah. you know. The timing of Jupiter's Legacy is probably its biggest problem. It exists in an era where other shows are doing what it aspires to do, but it does it nearly better in every way. Yep. You know, like the flashback timeline is a bit overlong and it lacks tension, which severely drags the pacing of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters are a bit caricaturish. Mm-hmm. The writing is stilted. Uh, even the effects are bland. And and I've said this many, many times while reviewing Mark Millar's comic books. Mark Millar is the Zack Snyder of comics. <laughs> uh, and, and yes, I 100% mean that as an insult. Like, he wants to write adult stories tackling complicated moral and social issues. But Mark Millar's insight into such issues, you know, like in Civil War II, for example, yeah. are frustratingly juvenile or surface level. Mm-hmm. So that drags it down. The adaptation, in fact, like dilutes it down further. So this is a 4 out of 10 for me. Um, did you catch any of this? I did. I did. And I, I had trouble enjoying it. Uh, yeah. I, I actually don't know why I ended up finishing it. I, I think in the end, it just became something I put on in the background, like past mm. the second episode. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, like, Jupiter's legacy, as in the comic itself, mm-hmm. it's not bad, right? If yeah, anything, it's, okay. it's one of Mila's better works. Yeah, um, I would say so, yeah. But this feels just so... This is, this is like, super-powered meh. Right, mm. like of all the math things we've discussed in this episode, this is super hard, man. I think Josh Duhamel does not have the acting chops to carry any of this. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, like I loved him when he was doing Vegas and all of that, but like I think mm. that is the extent of his ability. Um, mm-hmm. No disrespect, but honestly, mm. um, and like that can be seen of the whole cast more or less. Um, yeah. The characters are uninteresting. And that not unmotivated, but the motivations are shallow and just like it's it's melodramatic in points where it doesn't need to be in the points where there should be tension and drama and action. There isn't any. Uh, I really, really think that for once, for once, I think focusing on giving us a solid, tight origin story would have served this much better because the cutting to and fro between the two timelines does not add anything whatsoever. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, and you are trying to do too much with too little is what mm. I think Jupiter's Legacy ended up being. Yeah. Um, that being said, I do think the score, the soundtrack, lends a very interesting heaviness to the series. Mm. That is way more than it requires, mm-hmm. uh, but there's something interesting. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, it's it's great or anything, right? But it adds like a heaviness to the entire series that just feels a little out of place, um, yep. because it it feels like more thought was put into the score than into the series itself. If mm-hmm. if uh, I'm being serious, um, yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, it, it's it's. It's it's kind of background stuff. Uh, it's it's a four point five out of ten for me. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel feel great from both of us, and and much deserved to it. Uh, next up, uh, staying on Netflix, I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna be talking about a French survival thriller called Oxygen, mm-hmm. uh, which is directed by Alexandra Aha, who 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 is the director of Crawl, uh, one of my favorite uh, creature feature mm. uh, films from a couple of years ago about a bunch of uh, crocodiles or alligators. I'm not sure. Uh, in a basement, <laughs> uh, it was very very good. Um, the film, this film, Oxygen, it tells the story of a young woman played by Melanie Lawrence who wakes up in a cryogenic pod mm. um, she doesn't remember who she is or how she ended up in the cryogenic pod but she is running out of oxygen she must rebuild her memory figure out who she is and then find a way out it's a it's a locked in a box conceptual thriller more or less uh, and succeeds almost entirely due to melanie laurent's uh, great performance she is excellent and she aids suspension of disbelief by investing every second of her performance with utmost credibility like i, I feel i feel everything i feel her panicking i feel her claustrophobia you know mm-hmm. and at its best this film is a terrifically panicky claustrophobic and suffocating movie it will leave you breathless like literally However, a lot of the film's ideas are kind of borrowed, um, derivative from you know movies like Buried, for example. Yeah. Uh, the the movie where Ryan Reynolds is trapped in a coffin. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite its cool twists and goodness, like there are some twists that are literally out of this world, like mind-blowingly insane twists, like twist after twist after twist. Like there are a lot of missed narrative opportunities too. Mm-hmm. Um, but within its own limited parameters, it is a brisk, intense, and immersive and impressive experience. Uh, 7 out of 10 for me. Um, finally, I'm going to be talking about Solos on Amazon Prime. Solos is the longest in a long line of star-studded sci-fi anthology shows that cropped up after the success of Black Mirror. Um, this one on Amazon Prime, it stars Oscar winners Morgan Freeman, and Hathaway, Helen Mirren. Wow. It has Emmy winner Uzo Oduba. It has Anthony Mackie, Dan Stevens from Legion, uh, Constance Wu. Uh, but despite its star power and lovely production values, this is another thinly written, emotionally shallow, intellectually uh, impotent uh, sci-fi anthology. Don't waste your time, a 2 out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was yeah, like, like, oh, the- now, wow, what a cast. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> but you got you like I urge these like sh- like CBS with their Twilight Zone adaptation and Amazon like stop with the sci-fi anthologies. Like I've had it, I've had it with it. You know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you you've taken it to the limit. You know, like even Black Mirror, who is like the OG of doing this, right? At least the OG of the modern renaissance of this, like, yeah, is struggling. Yeah, like what what more the rest of you? Just just stop. You know, give me any other anthology. <laughs> like Amazon has like an anthology called Modern Love, which is about the story. Okay, fine. Room 104 is great. No, start, give me something different. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. Like, don't constantly have, like, sci-fi, dystopian bullshit like this. I'm just sick of it. I'm done. I'm done. And and that wraps it up for quick hits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I'm, I'm going to jump into uh, the, the quicker half of uh, Anime Corner with my yep. um, go, um, other strong recommendations other than the four that we're talking about. Uh, okay. Just very, very quickly. First up, we've got Tokyo Revengers. Mm. Uh, so basically, we follow Take, uh, Takemichi, who is, um, well, he's kind of like a washed out, uh, washed out kind of like office worker when we meet him. Uh, and then in, in kind of like typical fashion, someone pushes him onto the train track and then he discovers that he can travel back in time. 12 years exactly, uh, 12 years exactly uh, from, the, from the time that uh, he jumps to. So he can tr- travel to and from 
12 years. Uh, in 12 years, exactly, right? And uh, yeah. the reason for this, you don't find out till much later on, also, I'm told. Uh, mm-hmm. But the whole point is that he, as a delinquent middle schooler, um, gets involved in a gang that eventually, 12 years later, in his adult life, ends up killing his ex-girlfriend from middle school. Oh, okay. And uh, this begins his quest uh, inadvertently uh, to go back in time uh, to change the past so that his girlfriend wouldn't be killed. Mm. Right? Uh, kind of... Um, and it's, it's, it's actually pretty solid. Like, the character work here is 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 kind of fascinating because it involves him um with all the memories of his adult life and everything that has happened going back into his middle school body and trying to infiltrate and rise through the ranks of the gang that eventually kills his ex-girlfriend um yeah tokyo revengers super fun uh the fight scenes are actually pretty impressive for like it's not martial arts or anything of the sort it's just like straight up street brawling stuff um, but the mystery in terms of how they try and solve this problem of, of rescuing um, his ex-girlfriend uh, or current girlfriend, depending on which timeline you are, you're currently stuck in with him, uh, and several other characters that it is revealed in the end, uh, is, it makes for a wonderfully entertaining uh, shonen um anime with time travel involved that is fairly neat I have to say like a lot of the time time travel stuff uh, we are pretty particular about that here at genre uh, but Tokyo Revengers does a decently good job by keeping it simple like really really yes. simple you can only jump 12 years forward in time or 12 years backwards at the exact time that you do it and uh, all the complex like forward backward stuff is eliminated just with that mm. kind of simple thing so he has to pop into the future every once in a while to see exactly what he has changed uh, ah, but okay. he can't undo that anymore. Mm. He can only go back 12 years before. So like yeah, yeah, that yeah. simplifies it so much that you can focus on the story and how he goes about it and that mm. just makes it like so much more fun. Right? So Tokyo oh. Revengers, great uh, watch, great fun. Um, the kind of shenanigans he gets up to as like uh, insecure... Uh, unconfident adult in the body of a middle school delinquent who is, you know, has absolutely no idea what life is really about, is yeah. hilariously funny. Okay. Uh, the the twelve year gap in experience is is they play it to really really good effect. Mm. So Tokyo Revengers, uh, first up in well quite a number okay uh, nice. of things that I'm um, next up we're gonna talk about eighty six, uh, okay. where. Basically, um, we follow the Republic of Sam Mongolia, who has an ongoing war with the Giardian Empire. Uh, All right. But it is supposedly a, a, a victimless war. It has no casualties because, um, you know, people are using drones and, and, and robots to kind of like pilot and, and fight a proxy war. Um, uh, also, that, that they claim, right? But later on, we kind of find out that that's kind of mere pop- propaganda. Um, oh. A particular ethnic group called the Alba, who all have kind of silver hair, um, yeah. you know, uh, kind of live outside of, of the this republic's like eighty five sectors behind um, uh, protected walls, right? So these are like kind of the elite. They're the they're the the majority um, ethnic group, and and all of them are protected. They they don't see any of the violence and all of that. However, everybody else um, is enlisted 
forcibly enlisted into a secret 86 faction known as mm. the 86. Uh, and okay. it is the 86 who are forced to fight against the Empire's completely autonomous legion uh, in, in these uh, mech suits, essentially. Mm. Um, so it is uh, one of the better mech series that have come out recently. I think like haven't seen anything this good since uh, Gundam Iron Blood Orphans. Uh, Very, very solid. And like, it is a very interesting, if somewhat ill, um, not very well articulated treatise on uh, the other and the sacrifice that the other makes uh, in, in, uh, in what we consider kind of like peaceful society. Um, at least not yet, lah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. At least not yet. Um, and like at at this point in time, so I think it's episode seven right now that I'm caught up with. Um, the sh- kind of struggle here is very deeply human, right? Like the moments in time where they are not at war, and there's plenty of action and plenty of violence, and some interesting kind of like t- tactical set pieces, like that are very well thought out. Because a lot of anime that are like this aren't usually that well thought. That reminds me a lot of Lelouch. Ah. Of course, guys. Um, which is kind of interesting because like I haven't seen anything like that in, in a fair bit. The human drama that the 86, the people in the 86 go through is very, very powerful and moving. And their individual thoughts as this kind of like meat bags that are sent out to war um, and the dehumanizing of them as actual citizens of this country um, coincide with the kind of violence that the physical violence that they see fighting against an empire and kind of like the emotional and, and identity identity violence that is enacted upon them as as you know uh, the minority group here gotcha. right uh, are mirrored in very profound ways that i didn't expect um mm. and, and that's what makes it kind of good right like it is at this point in time no, not necessarily spoiler territory per se I think this is heading into like tragedy territory and it looks like it's going to be a pretty pretty solid tragedy uh, anime all in all. Uh, okay. I think this has a lot of things to say set amidst some very stunning visuals and a very solid kind of like um, very metally rocky kind of like soundtrack. Um, you know, uh, plenty of violence, plenty of meditations on violence and, and mm-hmm. otherness that... Okay. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm enjoying this um, more so than I thought I would when I first started the first three episodes. Uh, but, you know, it's done by A1 Pictures. Uh, consistently, very, very high production value and 86 is no different. Nice. Next up, I'm going to talk about the very hyped up and very, very anticipated uh, Hige Hero. Uh, ah. Or its very, very long title of which this is one of many very long titles in this particular segment. Which is after being rejected, I shaved and took in a high school runaway. Okay. Um, descriptive. Yes, extremely descriptive, uh, but not really. It's kind of baity. The title is kind of baity. It's not really what what a lot of people thought it was when the manga first came out, and the manga is wildly popular. Okay. Um, so we follow a regular kind of salaryman, Yoshida. Uh, he wakes up one morning and then um, with with a hangover and he discovers that in his apartment is a high school girl that he doesn't recognize. Okay. Uh, so, essentially, um, he... Uh, okay, essentially what happens is that he went, he was going to meet his, his long-time crush 
decides to shave. He's actually a school teacher. Uh, not a school teacher. He, he's a salaryman, a long time crush. He, he, he doesn't have time to kind of take care of himself. Finally decides to shave. Ends up bringing home a high school girl who has essentially, who is essentially homeless and has been um, trading shelter for sexual favors. Uh, okay. at the point in time when she meets him so she asks him to, to let her stay the night and mm-hmm. because he's drunk he complies um, and then he, he wakes up um, you know the next day with this girl in his house and because he finally kind of like listens to her story as he's sober and trying to find out what the heck happened the night before um, he, he finds himself unable to, to leave this girl alone and to kick her out uh, and he, um, he constantly, like a lot of the comedy comes from him constantly trying to rebuff her her advances because she's so used to this kind of transactional nature of, you know, sexual favors for for shelter and food and stuff like that. Um, it 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 starts out that way, and there's a lot of comedy that they do mine out of that. Uh, but eventually, um, well, in the, in the manga at least, uh, I don't think we really hit that point in the anime so far. It becomes a very touching story about found family mm. um, that uh, is is wildly uh, it 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 trumps all sorts of expectations um, that the premise of the story sets up. Like in any other case, like this would veer into hentai territory, like in a heartbeat, right? Um, but you know, he he hero really becomes an extremely touching. Um, story about like two individuals who find each other in the strangest of circumstances and it turns out that they do need each other but not in the ways that um, they expected or society has expected right like I see. Um, very very solid stuff uh, it surprised me when I read the anime to, f- to find out how it turned out Oh, uh, oh, you read a manga. Yeah, uh, yeah, in the manga, and so like, uh, very happy to have this anime on board, and like, it is extremely popular. A lot of people are very hyped about it coming aboard, and it seems like uh, everyone, including myself, has has been enjoying it. Nice. Yeah. Uh, next up is uh, we're gonna delve into isekai territory for the next uh two, uh, but not really the isekai that we're kind of used to. We have uh more like Joshi. Um, women-led isekai stories. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is called The Saint's Magic Power is Omnipotent. Um, so the uh, fantasy world of Salutania has always lived with the threat of this um, magical kind of miasma that haunts its borders. Uh, and every year as the miasma gets more... Um, every couple of, couple of years, every time the miasma gets, you know, more, more threatening to them and, and, and threatens to kind of like poison the livestock and, and its citizens, um, the the Grand Magus would summon a, a holy maiden, right? Like a legendary saint uh, uh, in your what, your usual kind of like typical isekai, um, you know, hero story. Uh, but this time around, uh, one of our, one the, our protagonist, Sei Takanashi, after a long day of work, gets summoned into this fantasy world. But it turns out that she happens to be summoned as one of two holy maidens who have been summoned at the same time due to some sort of clerical mistake on the huh. part of the, the Magasus. Uh, okay. The other girl is younger and cuter uh, and more of your like typical isekai protagonist roles. And as such, Sei finds herself kind of left by the wayside despite being incredibly 
gifted and powerful um, as kind of like the secondary backup saint. This leads her to spend her time in this fantasy world because, you know, until everything is resolved, she can't go back and she's not involved in any of the action whatsoever. Uh, ends up uh, her basically pursuing all the hobbies that she couldn't pursue as a kind of like a uh, salary woman in a deadbeat black company job, working long hours and stuff like that. So she dives oh. into kind of like herbalism and eventually, you know, because she's the saint, she, ma- she makes like these amazing potions that sell for a lot of money. And then she's naturally gifted at magic and she's uh, great at doing enchanting. There's basically nothing she can can do in this kind of fantasy world. But right. from kind of like the viewpoint of someone who is just extremely caught up in her nerdy little hobbies. Uh and 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 she and and because you know she she's just so caught up in that, she does extremely well at that. Um mm-hmm. so it's a it's a very different kind of like uh isekai slice of life thing where she's beginning to discover who she is in a fantasy world uh, but just on a very different path all right like she discovers that she is special not just because she's a saint but because of all the things that she has ignored by throwing herself into her work uh, ah. in, in her former life um, this is like straight up Joshi territory there's like tons of possible romantic uh, entanglements with these incredibly good-looking men uh, all kind of like all over the place uh, and and uh, it's it's heartwarming and, and kind of fun and kind of silly at the same time. Uh, where we are at in the season um, hasn't really upped the stakes yet but it seems like it's kind of going in that direction where she's going to have to unfortunately uh, against her better judgment take part in you know the conflict between uh, the forces of good and evil um, okay. but all of her kind of like little side adventures up till this point uh, apparently are going to play a big role in that and and I'm curious to see how that kind of pans out. Very, very fun. Um, you know, just like a very kind of interesting, light-hearted look at what an isekai could be if it wasn't like, you know, about a male shonen protagonist and how many things he can beat up. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, okay. in, in kind of like a similar vein, right, uh, and with an e- uh, equally long title as well, it's called I've Been Killing Slimes for 300 Years and Maxed Out My Level. In the same vein as, you know, our favorite like Slime Data Ken or uh, Bofuri um, um, or uh, Kumo Desuga. Like, uh, it's, it's another kind of isekai that's, you know, not too serious, kind of self-aware uh, satire of the isekai um, uh, genre. So basically, same kind of thing uh, <laughs> as Saintus, um, the one that I just talked about before. This girl, uh, this woman basically, you know, gets sucked into Isekai. Uh, the god of this world says that, you know what, you know, um, um, you've, you've worked very hard in life and I kind of want to reward you from that. So she's basically functionally immortal. She becomes a witch. Uh, and she lives in, a, in, in this particular fantasy world for 300 years, just going about her day. And kind of like killing the slimes that are on the way from her like really um, out of the way cottage to the town to sell potions, right? Okay. And she does this every day for like 300 years, but because of some benefits or some like level boosting experience thing that the god gave her, she basically maxes out her level, making her the most powerful being in the entire uh, world, right? Okay. And she doesn't discover this until like, like much later on so we start the story more or less like 300 years into the from the point of the beginning of the story yeah and uh yeah from there people come up to kind of like challenge her 
uh, people come up to kind of like ask her for help and it's just like this whole uh, mishmash of like weird characters who play into all the isekai tropes but she's very self-aware given that you know she was a big fan of, of the anime and manga and games in her former yeah. life so she's just like oh my god I, I don't have time for this kind of shit right so she avoids any kind of trouble but it still makes for some incredible kind of antics and as she goes along you know she kind of builds like a, a family around her um, mm-hmm. that uh, fills in for the family that she didn't have in her actual uh, in her former life uh, incredibly ah. funny incredibly fun some of the the gags are just like hilarious because she has like this internal kind of like quips that she has just because you know she has she she knows exactly what the meta story is going on at any given point in time and her place in that um mm. yeah so uh slime 300 is 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 pretty fun it's almost a one punch man ish uh it doesn't have the sh- the satire isn't as sharp or as critical as one punch man I see, uh okay. it, it is it is a bit it is it i think it's a lot more towards like um uh slime uh the other slime show <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, slime data can uh but like less action pieces less stakes in that manner really more slice of life Okay. Uh, uh, and and that being said, by the way, uh, for those of you who really like Slime Data Ken, this wasn't in my notes, but just as a kind of a side thing, there is yeah. a uh, Slime Data Ken OVA. It's called like uh, Slime Diary, and it's like just basically the same universe but slice of life. Uh, if you really enjoy the world building that they've done, that's also incredibly funny, but not really one of my my kind of like top picks for the season. Okay. As well. Okay, last couple ones. Uh next one is Don't Toy with Me, Miss Nagatoro. If you are a fan of uh Kaguya, Sama, Love is War, you're gonna love this. Uh basically, uh Naoto is incessantly and relentlessly teased by uh, Nagatoro, who is a first year student who is in his same school. Uh and um he he he's kind of like a uh, he he's a wannabe writer, and Nagatoro, um, after reading his story and seeing his awkward demeanor, decides that you know he wants uh, she wants to uh, make his life horrible by just teasing and bullying him all the time. Um, you know, so her antics are bothersome and annoying and leave him feeling embarrassed and humiliated as he's forced to kind of cater to her whims. Uh, but as they spend more time together, um, they develop a very strange sort of of friendship. Uh, and he finds out that you know that his life in the end turns out to be better because of that friendship, uh, and it, it's just kind of all around fun. So again, like a uh, very comedy slice of life, uh, in the vein of Ka- Kaguya Sama Love Is War. Okay. Uh, some of the some of the jokes are hilariously like good and funny and are a bit more adult than you would expect from that but just the delivery of it like is, is really kind of solid um, uh, for fans of, of, of Kaguya-sama and even maybe Horimiya in terms of um, the way that you know that, like strange friendships kind of sprout from from, from odd pairings mm-hmm. yeah uh, yes the next one with yet another long title this one doesn't the next couple ones don't rank as highly for me but they're kind of fun in their own way uh, okay. The next one's called Full Dive. The ultimate next-gen Full Dive RPG is even shittier than real life. Interesting. Um, so this is this is like a straight-up satire of of uh, of the whole like Full Dive RPG genre. So you're looking at your, you know, your SAO, your Sword Art Online, and and things of those ilk. 
mm-hmm. so yeah, so basically there's this there's this game called Kiwami Quest that was developed at the height of the VR MMO development about 10 years ago. So it's a, like a really, really old game, but it was the mm-hmm. pinnacle of like technology. Um, it was the pinnacle of te- MMO RPG technology at that point in time. The problem was is that it was so realistic and so difficult to play that nobody play- wanted to play it. Right, so okay. a very, very kind of niche group continued to play it for the decade that it's been out. Uh, and uh, a few years later, uh, Hiroshi, who's a high school student, that's like, he's he's pretty good at games, and and uh, he's kind of hooked on it. He's got a gaming addiction problem. Uh, gets tricked into buying this game, and since he spent a ton of money on it, uh, decides to to try it out anyway. And it turns out that um, Kiwami Quest uh, is like. It's it's basically real life in a fantasy world. Like it fucking sucks like all the time. Okay. Right? Like you feel pain, you bleed, uh it takes you act there's like no like healing spells for you to you actually have to recover from your injuries and stuff like that. Uh, you know, um if it's you know, all the benefits of like being able to use your five senses come with all the downsides as well, right? So like if you step in shit, you're gonna smell like shit. <laughs> and that whole kind of thing and like it, from the onset he just he just underestimates the game and fucks it up real big time because he ends up accidentally killing um his best friend huh? in the wow. first like few minutes of the game by accident and it turns wow. him into a fugitive in an incredibly difficult game uh, <laughs> and like yeah so basically like it's 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 absolutely horrible what happens to him and a complete uh, inversion of what you would expect from like a, a full dive anime, uh, mm. and it is is hilariously funny to see this guy suffer. Yeah. Uh, it, we're halfway through the season, and every episode you just kind of like hope he gets his shit together, like it clicks for him, and he finally finds a way to play this game in the when in the way that's meant to be played, but it never quite hits the spot, and you're mm. just like, oh man, oh man, oh man, you're kind of rooting for him, but at the same time you're laughing at him. And like you kind of like keep watching every episode just to see what happens next. Um, yeah. yeah, so it, it's fun in its own kind of like twisted way, which is pretty nice. good. Um, okay, last two. Uh, Pretty Boy Detective Club. And yeah. I know that saying those words out of my mouth isn't something that I would you you would think that I would usually recommend. But mm-hmm. this is uh this is a collaboration from two of like kind of my favorite studios, which is Clamp and Chef. Um, okay. you know, I'm big, big fans of what they've done, and uh, despite the extremely strange, um, for a lot of people, kind of off-putting name, Pretty Boy Detective yeah. Club is incredibly fun, nice. right? So okay. basically, we follow uh Mayumi, uh, who promises her parents that she will live up to her dreams of becoming an astronaut uh, on her 14th birthday, so that she could go find a star that she kind of spotted in the sky a long time ago. Um, you know, um, and and she gets helped uh to search for a star by enrolling in a very kind of special school called the Ubiwa Academy, uh, and she discovers along the way that there is a mysterious, uh, kind of like CCA like a club called the Pretty Boy Detective Club, uh, okay. whereby there's only three rules that they have to follow, which is they have to be pretty, they have to be a boy, and they have to be a detective. Okay. <laughs> like kind of like very simple rules and uh, so she's introduced to kind of like a whole host of like Bishonen uh, you know uh, these pretty boys who who are basically like 
extremely gifted in like a but in a very specific facet of life. Like one of them is an amazing, like Michelin star chef at his age. One of them mm-hmm. like is a is a martial artist, and and one of them has like like the most beautiful legs in the world. Mm, okay. And, and yeah. Uh. And that's like that's played for so many gags that it's it's kind of incredible. Uh. But mm-hmm. they are all really really solid detectives uh and she just kind of gets embroiled in like their little adventures and dragged along out of despite the fact that you know her her goals are kind of completely uh yeah uh, not unrelated to that <laughs> yeah okay. uh yeah but essentially this is this is for fans of oran high school um host club right, right it's okay. oran high school host club uh which for those of you who've never checked it out is kind of like a legendary um uh uh, Bishonen kind of uh, anime that I, I don't want to like spoil if you haven't seen it but for those of you that do know this is basically that with like Sherlock Holmes times 5 slapped onto it ah. uh, and it's really really funny it's really really fun it's very colourful and bright and the animations are just totally over the top uh, you have this almost like magical girl-esque like transformations that happen every once in a while that just are like hilarious, hilariously hilarious visual gags um, okay. But behind it all, like as a detective kind of like story, is it's very solid. Like it really is very solid. The writing is really really good, despite the fact that it's so over the top. Uh, so like for those of you that like your pretty boys and like just like a bit of fun and mystery to go along with that, Pretty Boy Detective Club is very solid. Um, nice. And one of the stranger recommendations, I think, outside of my own personal taste that I've made in a while, but um, that's just an indication of how much fun I've had with that. Awesome. The last one I've had is called Shadow's House. Um, and it basically follows uh, this strange uh, family of nobles who are called the Shadows and, and um, have like these uh, pitch black appearances and uh, a tendency to, to like um, e- emit like soot and ash when they are agitated. Uh, and oh. they reside in this like colossal manner deep within the mountains, really far from humankind. Um, so when a shadow child uh, grows up, um, they are assigned a, a living doll um, who who is a, essentially a human who acts not only as, you know, their attendant, but also kind of like their their other half, um, kind of the faces that they would have had if they had faces. Mm. Um, so we follow Emiliko, who is like this cheerful, uh, newly created doll who serves a, a very a soft-spoken master called Kate. And uh, they have like wildly different personalities. Uh, but Emiliko tries to to carry out, you know, her duties to the best of her abilities. Um, but as she kind of like immerses herself into her role, um, she begins to meet the other dolls who serve the other family members uh, and, and the other respective masters um, to kind of find out a bit more about her existence. Uh, and it slowly, like there's a grand mystery behind all of this that's kind of established in the, the world building that takes place over the first three episodes. Uh, and it the it's a very kind of like evenly slow paced revelation of that through the exploration of the very odd circumstances that um, the our characters find themselves in. Um, they are they are they are fantastical creatures to be sure, both both the shadows and the living doll itself. Uh, but like it, un, un, the the mystery unfolds in a very interesting manner. Uh, to say the least. Uh, I really, really like the character designs in particular here. Um, kind of like really gorgeous and interesting to look at. 
uh, and and the voice acting is kind of like solid as well as you kind of unfold this like strange fantasy mystery, uh, which is very different from kind of the host of things that I've already talked about today. Um, mm. Yeah, so a solid watch overall. Uh, maybe not as great as everything else, but if you have a bit of time and you're keen on the genre in particular of just like kind of this um, seinen, slice of life, supernatural fantasy mystery, um, I, I highly I encourage you to catch Shadow House because it's by Cloverworks who has been killing it over the last couple of seasons uh, nice. okay. in, in terms of their production value uh, overall. So, um, yeah, that pretty much wraps right. up my, my strong stuff. Uh, just a quick note, guys. Some returning mm-hmm. series that I come back, Fruit Basket, the new Fruit Basket, is in its final yeah. season right now. Finally, 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 after nearly like a decade of like waiting for <laughs> it to finish, it is finally going to finish. Uh, and yeah. uh, in fact, Fruit Basket, the final, is the highest rated anime series of this particular season. More highly awesome. rated than even the four that I was talking about in the first half. Right? So right. I'm not going to spoil anything. Uh, it, it gets pretty interesting. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, season two of Megalobox, which some of you may or may not have seen pop up on uh, on uh, on Netflix. Uh, Nomad is out as well. Uh, and um, for those of you that don't know, Megalobox is kind of like a what's that show with 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 a uh, Spartan guy? Uh, it's basically guy? it's basically uh, boxing with. Okay. Um, you know, like these mech suits, essentially. Um, real steel. Real steel is that is that what it's called? Yeah. So essentially, like Megalobox is kind yeah. of like an anime kind of real steel. Uh, the first oh. the first season is actually a very very solid kind of like sports anime, um, mm-hmm. boxing related, obviously, where we follow the main protagonist and in his journey, um, through like the underground like fight, uh, circle, um, you know, to become kind of the to to, to survive and become the best boxer there is. Nomad kind of continues from that story. Okay. Uh, but it takes on like a totally different tone now. Like it looks kind of the same. The character designs are all the kind of same. And so is the art style. But now think of it as kind of like Mad Max. So it's wildly, wildly different. And it is so good. Mm. Just given like the complete turn of, of, of what it is. Uh, right. Like I gave Megalobox a fairly decent score, I think. But Nomad is turning out to be a lot more exciting and a lot more fun than I uh, than the first season is. So if you're going into this and you've really watched Megalobox, like get ready for kind of like a wow ride in terms of um, what they're trying to do with the season. Uh, but it's very very good right now. Nice. Uh, okay. Moriarty the Patriot, which I talked about about season one, is back and again is very very highly rated. Uh, this season we see a lot more of kind of like uh, uh, squaring up between. Um, um, Moriarty and, and Sherlock is a bit more direct than we got last season and the kind of mm-hmm. like schemes that they're getting up to uh, the stakes are a lot more higher this time round and it's turning out to be a very very solid continuation of season 1 Zombieland Saga Revenge is the season 2 of Zombieland Saga uh, I've talked about this quite some time ago essentially it's about an idol who dies gets resurrected as a zombie and then gets mm. recruited to join a zombie idol group um, with some of the most amazing music set pieces I've ever seen, including nice. uh, okay. yeah. So that was season one. Season two, much like Nomad Megalobox, is taking on a completely different thing, and now it's going into like magical girl territory. 
uh, with ah, my... Okay. They are out for revenge for, for those of you who haven't watched season one. Uh, based on the things that happened in season one, they are out for revenge for the circumstances that they find themselves in and is taking on a more action-adventure role while having some crazy musical numbers. Um, so right. it's it's been fun. It's been fun. I mean, like it was kind of a really kind of underrated thing for season one. And season two is like turning out to be even more fun, uh, which is kind okay. of strange. So if you have set the time, that's worth catching. Uh, the last two are the kind of like bummers, but you know, these are kind of big names that I think we should talk about anyway. So the first okay. one I'm going to talk about is Eden Zero, which is from um, the creator of um, from the creator. Oh, I just drew a blank. What what is it? Not so. Uh, let me just bring that up real quick. <laughs> oh my god, I like completely blanked. Yeah, so Eden Zero is made by the same guy who made Fairy Tale, right? Ah, okay. Yeah. Um you can give it a chance but I would say don't bother because it's basically fairy tale okay. but less interesting <laughs> okay yeah I mean there was so much hype about Eden Zero the manga is decently good I haven't finished all of it for sure um, right. but much like fairy tale it tends to be over long um, you know uh, and like Eden Zero like right off the bat already feels like it's going to be over long right mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's still a 20 minute anime but an episode but like it already feels that way uh, all the familiar tropes are there. All the same beats are there. Uh, it's just basically fairy tale, but in a slightly more sci-fi setting. Um, gotcha. Yeah, the artwork is the same. And if you love fairy tale and you love, um, you know, Hiro Mashima's work, then uh, Eden Zero is it's, it's more of the same. Um, oh, it's an FFO for fans of uh, fairy tale. It, this will be for you. Yeah, this is, will be for you. Uh, yeah. But like personally, I, I dropped it after three episodes, so... Um, okay. just, just a shout out so you know that it exists and that it's there right okay. the last one that for me is kind of a big disappointment and I think more of a disappointment in my own kind of memory and, and banking on nostalgia is the remake of Shaman King huh. um, Shaman okay. King as some of you may know was a really really popular uh, anime out of the 90s I believe uh, right. and I followed that religiously um, in a time when like streaming anime wasn't actually a thing Right, gotcha. so we were watching it on like Aniplex or um, Kid Central, I think, or whatever it is we were watching it back then on. So it's probably Kids. Uh, yeah, it's probably Kid Central. Um, so Shaman King was something that I followed, and it was like, like it in my memory, it ranks as one of like one of the best anime of my childhood, uh, mm-hmm. and kind of like impactful in that. But in the same vein as kind of Inuyasha. Right. But the Shaman King remake has made me rethink that. Because okay. it's a remake that's basically beat for beat. The okay. animation style is the same, which makes it dated. But the production value is way, way better. But the story is exactly the same. They don't bring anything new to the table. It is literally a remake. Yeah. Um, and after watching like a couple of episodes and like, oh, first episode, Nostalgia Trip. Second episode, oh yeah, that's cute. And third episode, I'm like, you know what? This isn't actually as good as I remember it to be. Oh, which makes okay. it a little disappointing. Uh, yeah, but if you that. if you do want to like if you have watched Summon King and you do want to uh, relive some of that, like uh, sure, it's worth catching. Like the animation is 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 is, is new, it's fresh, it's clean, it's sharp, it's in HD. Um, mm. You know the fight scenes are a lot better because of that. Uh, but the style is dated, and you will recognize that straight away. 
okay. so like the polish with the dated art style doesn't quite go together and once like you've watched enough for you to kind of remember what this how the story goes like i kind of lost all motivation to continue on that uh, I see. so much in the same way that like i was talking about like inuyasha's um a sequel, right? Where we look at the daughters as well. Like the nostalgia factor is a huge thing, but in and of itself, it isn't as great when you compare it to the kind of like top SSS tier anime that we've been getting over the last decade. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it Shaman King remake does exist. Um, you know, check it out if if you want to. Okay. Cool. And and that wraps it up for Anime Corner. Yep. Yep. That's pretty much it. As I said the most stacked spring season I've ever seen. Amazing. Uh, yeah. If you if you have if you don't have time, I highly recommend to your eternity and VV. Master and Alt Taxi yeah. if you're if you like the kind of like really left view anime. Um okay. the rest are, are good recommends, strong recommends in fact. Um you know I would rank them a good like seven point five, but um nice. they're not like the eight point five to nines that the the top four are yeah, I, I'm. I'm personally planning to check out your your top four. Uh, I'm just like, this is not genre at all. I'm just like, I I recently discovered like uh, Midnight Diner. Oh on, my god! Uh, Netflix. Uh, so I'm like slowly making my way through like that and then Tokyo Story. So, yeah, like yeah. Once I'm done with that, I'm gonna delve into the enemies. For sure, man. I binge watch uh, both of those. So, so both Midnight Diner and, and Tokyo Diaries. Yeah. Uh, when we were in lockdown last year, I think that was the time that I was like kind of doing that. Dude, I like I yeah. watched everything. Like every meal what I would just be watching something. What a hidden gem. Oh, from, it from is Netflix. so good. It is so good. I, yeah. I don't know. I was fortunate enough to have that recommended to me just because of the sheer amount of like food shows that I watch on Netflix. Right, right, right. Um yeah. so you know, in line with like Chef Table and all of that. Uh so I think it was a combination of the Japanese stuff that I've been watching and the food shows that I've been watching and I was recommended those. Um yeah. yeah, shout out to to um uh, to both of those shows, guys. Uh, if you love, mm-hmm. like, really quiet human stories, um, and and its intersection with food, please go check those out. Definitely, man. Yeah, um, highly recommend. I know it's an older show from like the mid twenty tens, you know, but like Netflix, you know, picked it out a couple of years ago. Yeah. So if you if you have nothing to do, it's like not an intensive show. Nope. You can watch like one once a day or once a week or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's anthology format. It doesn't really have any serialization going on, although they are repeat characters, mm-hmm. but. You know, it's an easy watch, man. Yeah. If you have like a free 20 minutes a day, just sit down yeah. and de-stress. Before you go to sleep, go watch Midnight Diner. It's going to be the yeah. best way to de-stress. You yeah. know, uh, if you really like Midnight Diner, right, there are a couple of enemies that are almost like exactly the same, but with like fascinating premises with that. Um, usually fantasy-based, but it's the same exact concept, an anthology series that surrounds like a diner. Um, right, okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should do a behold about this. Uh, um, Interesting. Sometime, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, and we will be back next month for Genre Equality 43, where uh, our main topic is finally, after like, what, 14 <laughs> months of waiting, uh, A Quiet Place Part 2 comes out. Yeah. Uh, which will not... This is this is not a good thing, but it's also a good thing. It's not available for streaming, meaning that you'll be forced to go watch it in the cinema as it was meant to be. Like, of any of the things that you should watch in the cinema, it's A Quiet Place because of the fucking sound design. Yep. So I'm... So we are excited to go and watch A Quiet Place Part 2 next month. Yeah. Uh, Sweet Tooth is coming out on Netflix, yeah. which is an adaptation of uh, Jeff Lemire's comic book, which I'm personally a big fan of. Mm-hmm. Eager to see how that works out. Yeah. Uh, Luca, we'll also be talking about. It's a new Pixar film uh, coming out of Italy. Uh, interesting. Luca looks like 
call me by your name, but instead of if they were not gay, they were sea monsters instead. Yeah, do you know? Yeah, you know it, I mean? yeah, exactly. That. Yeah, it's like if call me by your name was about sea monsters, that that is Luca and for kids. Yeah, uh, and also right at the end, like I I know the bad batch isn't finished yet, but it will be like two thirds over by next month, and I really need to pad up the, <laughs> I need to pad up the schedule. Yeah. Um, Star Wars the bad batch. If Isa can like review that, it will be great. Yeah, yeah. I I mean like uh, uh, I mean usually you know like Hardy has been our go to man over the last couple of years for all anything Star Wars animated. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, I'm gonna have to take over for that. Uh, big shoes yeah. to fill because, like, Hardy's kind of like mm. mental library of of Star Wars and stuff is insane. Uh, yeah. So I'll I'll do my best. I do my best. I have gotten a fair bit of it, uh, and it's been cool. pretty good so far. Um, nice. Yeah. Eager to uh, catch that out. Plus, on Quick Hits, I'll be talking about some smaller things like The Conjuring Tree is coming out soon. Uh, Tresse, which is an interesting anime out of the Philippines. Yeah, looks very uh, good. It, it looks very good. There's also Record of Ragnarok, which has been getting a lot of hype. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm super not familiar with any of it or the source material, but hey, people seem psyched about it. It's going to be on Netflix. Yep. So I'm going to check that out. Yep. Uh, yeah, so those will be like our, our big topics for General Equality 43. Uh, in the meantime, before that, next month, we'll also have a couple of beholds where we'll be celebrating. I don't know whether celebrating is the right word. Uh, commemorating a couple of big... Uh... Celebrating one and commemorating the other. Sure, yeah. yeah. One is uh, Pride Month, which happens June every year. Uh, obviously, Pink Dot is not happening in Singapore, but we can celebrate by talking about some of our favorite LGBTQ films of all time, mm-hmm. as well as Refugee Week, which takes place on January 20th. Uh, not, not January, sorry, June 20th, uh, where we, I will be picking out some of the most powerful films that humanize the refugee experience. So um, I think Isa has seen Persepolis mm-hmm. and, and the, rest, the rest are equally as good. So yeah, uh, tune in for, for those. Uh, any last thoughts before we, we cap off this month? Uh, no, that's about it. Uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, small reminder again that we are on YouTube right now. Mm, uh, so right. if you are listening to this on Mixcloud and you do prefer YouTube, this will also be up on that. Um, I mean, like we, we, we've seen some guys, uh, thanks to the guys who have already subscribed and all of that. Uh, but yeah, if you are listening to us on YouTube, please throw us a like, throw, throw us a subscribe, throw us a follow, ring the bell, all of that good stuff. Um, I can't believe I'm saying that after so long. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a bit surreal. But yeah, um, so we'll be uploading this on YouTube as well. Nice. And until next time, this has been Hit Zero. Hi, my sir. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.